How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Can you? Do I sound any different? Uh, I mean, you're not. No, you sound the same. You sound. You sound like when we when we do a podcast, not in person. You sound like you're all the way in New Jersey. That's good. That's Does, good. Did you get a new microphone or something? No, my same old microphone. It's on a new microphone stand. Does it make any difference? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. No, it does. It sounds really much better. I'm going to... Here. <laughs> I'm just opening up a, 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 a sparkling water while I, while I contemplate how, how much better you sound. Um, is it a... What what's cool about it? is it a is a stand up microphone stand or are you what's what, what about the stand um, is uh, why'd you get one so well it's a good question <laughs> yeah. um, the, the reason so this I'm in my office office as opposed to my home office and right. um, I don't know if we mentioned this before either someone stole my microphone stand or I have very very significantly misplaced it so. I had a little uh, microphone stand that would sit on a desk. It was kind of nice. It was quaint. It made me look like uh, Walter Cronkite or something like that. Um, but it was also, it sat on my desk, which meant that if I was typing or anything, it was not, it's not really a, what we call a good design um, right, in right. business. Um, and so at home, I have a boom-mounted uh, microphone stand. And this one, this one is a floor, uh, not floor-mounted. It is a, a sitting-on-the-floor Ooh. Um, Microphone stand, um, like does like, it raise up? It, like, ra- it, stand up? it raises and lowers. It's oh. got a, it's got an arm that is. Um, yeah, my microphone's rather heavy, so uh, it the the arm the arm can't be as long as I would like it to be, and have the stand be further away because it will tip over. But mm. I think I've got I think I've got a pretty good uh, configuration that I, that I worked on carefully so I could be ready to go um, ahead of schedule. <laughs> that that is uh, yeah. And then I texted you and said I'm going to be ten minutes late. Uh, behind schedule. Um, but, but, oh, but so the reason why I bought this one is, um, it was cheap on Amazon and I could, at the moment it occurred to me, um, uh, I was at home and uh, I could order it and have it sent to work where it would be there ready to go in good time uh, because Amazon prime, um, for, uh, for this podcast that we're doing here today. So it actually arrived on uh, Monday and here it is Wednesday uh, and it was there waiting for me. So I just had to set it up and boom, we're off to the races as they say. that's amazing. That's that's pretty cool. Amazon's great that way, and and other delivery people. Not to be Amazon's not a uh, not a sponsor. No, um, and and they're you favorite. know and and they're and they're uh, a, they're an evil force um, at work in the universe. Um, you know we know this, uh, but also there's really nice people there uh, who work in food safety that I know, and you know no reflection on them. Uh, I think as you would right. say in the South, no shade, no lemonade. <laughs> I think that's what Beyonce says. <laughs> I, know, yeah. I, got, I got that from you. I, maybe you got it from Beyonce, but yeah, I got that from, from you. No shade, no lemonade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's that's pretty that that's pretty exciting. I uh, so I was a little bit late. I texted you. Um, two couple things are happening. I'm going to tell you about my day uh, in a in a second. Um, but my day culminates with with what we're doing now <laughs> in the in the true linear fashion of time, where where there's other things that have happened earlier. Um, and then I, then I, I knew we were recording a podcast. Uh, but the thing that I was doing before this, uh, took a little bit extra time and I knew that I was going to be late cause I had to my microphone, which I had taken apart to take it to uh, Louisville for, uh, for, for IFP, our, our live recording. Um, and so my assembly wasn't maybe nearly as complicated as yours. I just had to put it back to on the, the dampening stand. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yep. It's on the, it's on the damper. Um, now, is that an and, actual f- official technical damper, or is it just a pile of books? 
it's a little bit of both. That's <laughs> what we call a hybrid little, damper in the biz. Yeah, it's a hybrid damper. It's a damper that that rests on a pile of books. Nice. Um, so it, yeah, and and I'm I feel like I'm at the right like mic level now. I've got like I'm I'm constantly and, and this is the behind the scenes things that people love about podcasts. Um, <laughs> That's I, why they I tune in. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I um, I'm constantly adding and taking away books from from the. From the <laughs> The book stand based on how you how much you grow or shrink between yeah. podcasts. No, like and how much I'm hunching. Oh, Every po- once yeah, in a while, posture. I'll, yeah, I'll like uh, I'll I'll put you on on mute and I'll go over and get another book off my shelf. So in the in the um, let, let me read to you what I have in my books uh, that are currently being used. I have a, a copy of So Easy to Preserve. I have a copy of a um, a book on focus groups. Um, I have now the spines are not even going the right way. Um, I have a, uh, survey development, uh, book called asking questions. I have a book, uh, that, that I read maybe 15 years ago, um, that I enjoyed and it's helped me, uh, uh, look at data differently. And although I don't agree almost at all with the author, uh, but it's, uh, the skeptical environmentalist. Oh, that's um, a great book. I, I actually have that book on my home office and read it, read it some time ago. It's a long one, but it's a good one. It's a good one, and it's and it's good from a. It, it's like why it, it's good to make you think about how you should look at data. Like that's the way that I that I looked at it. And then the so last, do, one, do you are you are you not a skeptical environmentalist, Ben? Do you are you saying you disagree? I, I I I'm 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 very sure that uh, well I, I'm of the mind that uh, there's a uh, a man-made uh, global climate issue, <laughs> and yes. the skeptical environmentalist is a little little more skeptical about that. Um, so uh, anyway. Um, and then, uh, then the last one is uh, modern food microbiology, fourth edition, uh, uh golden, my, golden and golden J? J, J. Yep. J. And I think it may be, I think it may just be J. Uh, and I think golden did fifth edition, but I already had fourth. So I don't, uh, I didn't get the fifth. It does, microbiology the, I, doesn't change that much. I didn't take the fifth on that one. Uh, yeah, no, microbiology doesn't change. Well, I mean, it changes a little bit. Um, oh, yeah, I have, I, I'm just, I'm, we're just, this is fascinating. I, I also have uh, Modern Food Micro 4 uh, on my shelf uh, ah! by James J. without David Golden. Without, yeah, I think it's just the J. Um, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have, I also have Modern Food Microbiology. Sorry, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the wrong glasses for this. I'm wearing my up close glasses. Um, I have Modern Food Microbiology. It's a yellow book. Hold on. Well, Yellow. Seventh edition oh, by, seventh. by Jay Losner and Golden. There you go. That, wow. That's got to be the most, most current, current one. Um, Golden. So I, I only met uh, Jay, James Jay, one, one time at IAFP back, uh, back in the, the fateful carcass ball. Um, the IAFP Orlando, whatever year that was. Let's say it was 2007. Um, and, uh, I know it was that year cause I organized a symposium that, that, uh, with, with Manon, uh, Sharma and Michelle Daniluk and Renee Boyer, uh, where we invited, uh, um, James J and, uh, Rob Tokes. That was the first time I'd, I think I'd met him and it was, the symposium was, was something entitled like with over a hundred years or 200 years or 500 years of, uh, f- food safety, microbiology experience. We think that, dot, dot, dot. And, and we posed, uh, a, a couple of questions to, to the panel, but I remember that was the only time I met, met James J. Hmm. Um, and it was really like a fascinating, like wisdom, f- wisdom filled, 
insightful talk uh, from from every one of the the panelists. It was my it's still I think one of my favorite um, symposia that I that I had been to. Um, and just because I, I think the questions that we posed to the to the panel, this is before roundtables. It was a, a symposium that was a little bit. I, I, I will say it's ahead of its time uh, because we we asked um, the the panelists it, it really like to set up as uh, as their talk. What what's the you know most most important thing that's happened in food safety in the last fifty years, and what do you think the most important thing will happen? You know that, that's going to happen in the next fifty years. Uh, and, and didn't let them talk to each other about what each of them were going to say. Um, so hopefully like, like beforehand, beforehand, cause I didn't oh, want okay. and, and it was, yeah, yeah. No, you know what I mean? Like we didn't want them to contaminate each other yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and so we got them to, I think like submit their brief answers to us to make sure that we weren't, we didn't have like four people say like irradiation and, and then give the same talk and, and there weren't any overlaps. So. And, but yeah, that was, that was my James, that's my James J, uh, the only time, only time that I met the guy. And then I think mm. he passed away not soon after that. Um, well, maybe, maybe a couple of years after, but, mm. um, yeah. Do you ever, do you ever meet him? I, I would recognize him. I mean, well, if I, if he walked by me today and he was dead, I would be very well, shocked, but yeah, I, I, I would recognize him. I think I may have, I may have meet, met him at a meeting, but not like certainly he probably didn't know me from Adam. So no, but, uh, but I know of the man and I, and I've had his book on my shelf for a long time. I had, um, one of the early ones, um, uh, a long, long time, uh, probably somewhere on my shelf. Um, but the problem is I can't, if I go to turn to look at the books on my shelf, my voice is probably fading away from you. So I won't do that. Okay. Okay. Um, it's, uh, I don't know why I'm looking up, uh, modern food microbiology. Um, and, uh, on, on the, uh, on Springer, Springer, uh, Springer.com, not Jerry Springer.com, just Springer.com. And it's all coming up. It thinks that I'm in the UK, I think, cause it's all coming up in, euros and the uh price price in spain yeah i'm looking at the same page price for spain gross <laughs> gross spain gross. that is a gross that is gross spain <laughs> why why would they why are we only getting spain are we are we on the same are you running a spanish I, uh, vpn like i, think, I am i think i think uh i think uh the 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 springer site is broken it's a Springer fight definitely thinks that we should be in, in Maine or in Maine, not Maine, in Spain right now. The uh, Maine in Spain stays mainly in the plane. <laughs> oh, no. It's devolved already here. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I wanted the reason I launched into this. How do I know James? J, James J uh, was was really a segue into I saw David Golden for the first time in like three or four years. Oh, I do this year. I did, too. which was really cool. So yeah. he's, he's he's back. He, he, he did a. He did a stint uh, being uh, in in the I think the University of Tennessee's president's um, uh, entourage. He was yeah. in the, the administrative uh, office, and then he's back doing doing food safety stuff now. And I, I like that. Guy. I like running into that guy. Um, oh, I figured I figured he had gone forever off to off to be in uh, the upper administration levels of football at uh, Tennessee. <laughs> right, right, yeah. He's he was at every buffet. Every, yeah. every Tennessee buffet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was good. To, it was good to run into him. He, he, him, he runs around, uh, with another guy. We're doing a lot of name dropping today. Um, runs around with another guy, uh, Rob Williams from Virginia tech. And, uh, I refer to them, uh, going back a long time. I'm not sure why as team Tennessee. Every time <laughs> I'd, I'd see them out, uh, at IAFP at a, at a restaurant or a bar, they would be, they would hang out together and I would just yell out team Tennessee. 
and then they would yell back team Tennessee. And that was, that was our thing. They should, they should yell back team North Carolina. They, they should you. now. That yeah. would make sense. But anyway, um, yeah. So, so we'll, we'll link to David's Wikipedia page. He was the executive assistant <laughs> to the president of the, to the regional, <laughs> regional executive assistant. <laughs> <laughs> assistant to the executive. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, that's a, that's an office space reference, right? Yeah, uh, no, it's an office reference. Uh, the office, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, assistant to the regional manager. Yes. Uh, he's got a Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> Tim Golden does. Did I say Wikipedia? You did. James J doesn't have a Wikipedia page, which is what right. I was trying to look for. No, I, David <laughs> David Golden's LinkedIn page. Oh, LinkedIn. Poor page. man's Wikipedia. Uh, he does have a, a Wikipedia page. Uh, it's, it might be a different page. <laughs> David Golden. Probably is. Uh, born in uh, December 1978 uh, and is a uh, – well, you know, I, something I didn't know about David Golden uh, that you might be also shocked to learn is uh, he had some jazz years, uh, 96 <laughs> to 97. Uh, that was his first noteworthy work uh, playing an upright bass in the New York City-based uh, uh, jazz sextet with oh, uh, thought, Charlie Looker. I thought I thought you were going to say he was on a basketball team called the Jazz. Uh, oh, the, his jazz year is there. No, different, <laughs> there must be another different David Golden. Uh, anyway, uh, Dave, David, we, uh, we, we, uh, we, laugh, we laugh with you. There yeah, was he, a, he probably doesn't listen, but anyway, yeah, it was good to see him at, at IAFP. It was, it was. Um, all right. So I want to tell you about my day because this, this, this is what I, this is what I kind of do. Um, so I'm doing, I'm doing a new, a new project. Um, and the new project is, um, we're, we're doing some extension work with, uh, schools and I won't get like, um, too much into it other than it's, it's with our Wake County schools here. Um, the, I live in Wake County and, um, I was approached a, a few months ago to help them do some assessments on, um, th- their kitchens that, that they're using not for cafeterias, but for teaching, um, family and consumer science facts, uh, classes at middle school and, and high school. And, um, they, w- what they'd asked for was a, um, like, you know, to, for someone to come out and tell them if they, if they need to improve things, if, if everything looks good, things to, to work on, uh, on missing piece of equipment, that kind of thing. And, and it, where, where it's morphed to is, is really like, um, so, so that was like where we started and I kind of went back and said, you know, what would be, what would be great is if we could couple sort of food safety things like thinking about thermometers, um, and, uh, cleaning and sanitizing with safety and someone, you know, from, from Twitter and from the internet, uh, Dr. Sarah Kirby, who's here in my, in my department, um, she works on, um, she's a, a housing specialist, works on healthy homes and kitchens. Um, so Sarah, Sarah joined me and, and Natalie Seymour. Um, and then, uh, we're also partnering with, uh, our department head, um, Carolyn Dunn, uh, on, on, on this as well. And her backgrounds in, um, nutrition and, and culinary. And so, um, so the idea is that, that we're, we, we want to support, um, like continuous improvement. And, and I, I thought of you a couple of times and in fact, like took some pictures and, and noted for our discussion today, because, um, some of the stuff that, 
the, the, the folks that we're working with who are at the county are asking, we're asking about was like, how long should I keep a cutting board for? Or how long should our, our teachers keep cutting boards for? And what's the best way to store these cutting boards? And, um, and you know, I've, I've talked uh, you know, a lot with you about my love for, um, sort of messy situations in reality, right? Like this, it's, it's the root of, um, well, it's complicated and it depends, you know, when we look at, at some of these real world world questions and it was just really cool. This is, this was our first day today going out, went and saw a bunch of, um, kitchens and started to formulate what, what a what an instrument, what a tool might look like to to help with these assessments, and then more importantly, how do we communicate this back to to teachers, to administration, to to look for that that improvement? And and it's a it, like I don't know, it's just a fascinating it, um, fascinating day and, and kind of like inspiring in a way because I think I can see sometimes like um, I think about this with with other projects that I've been involved with, I can I can almost see the end of it now on where, where I want it to go, where, where our team wants it to go, which is, oh, we're, we're making, we're, we're making, um, the food that's served and made into those classes safer than it, than it might be today. But we're also giving the why and, um, encouraging, um, teachers who are doing the instruction to their students to talk about, you know, these things and, and that we're, we're really trying to, um, impact, not just like, it's more than just like walking into a kitchen and being like, Oh yeah, you need to, you need to wash these pots and pans. It's, it's, it's more, I don't know, it's more holistic and it's about sort of changing the the system. And, and there's a, uh, a, you know, safety culture and a food safety culture aspect to it. There's, you know, there, I, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the end package is going to look like for it, but today was the first day of that project. And it was just, it was cool to just be out in the real world doing it. Cool. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, what do you like? So someone, this, this was the the note that I wrote down for you. So I, I saw some pretty heavily scored plastic, um, uh, um, cutting boards and, you know, stained and, and scored. And, and the, you know, the question came up of, are these, you know, or should we get rid of them? And I was like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but here, you know, let me, let me step you through some ideas about what the risk might be, um, associated with them and how, you know, it's, so I'll, I'll tell you what we kind of ended up on, but, but how, you know, if you were in this situation of, you know, here's, here's, a a, a real, mo- you know, monetary issue for our public school system of like, Oh, should we replace 6,000 cutting boards this year? What, how do we, when, when's the threshold on when we should replace them? What can we do in the short term to manage risks and what should we keep our eyes on? How would you, how would you approach that? Well, so first of all, let me say that this is a risk management decision, right? This it is. is. This is not a risk assessment yes. decision. And so right. what, what, so that's, and the quantitative, the quanti- quantified information you gave was what, what clicked the switch for me. So 6,000 cutting boards. So my question is, what is your current budget for new cutting boards? Right, like how how many yeah. cutting how many cutting boards can you reasonably afford to buy per year? Is it twenty five? Is it a hundred? Well, right. So give me that number, and, and then me, and then let me let me. Yep. I'm going to make it a little more complicated though, right? So so I don't have a like, and and this I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to I'm going to play risk manager here uh, on behalf of my my partners and colleagues at the uh, at the school system. Maybe I have a budget and I have money for equipment, but I don't have a cutting board budget. Exactly. What I have is. 
right? Like I've got, I could buy 6,000 new cutting boards or I could buy 200 new ovens or I could, uh, you know, buy a bunch of glow germ or I could right. get more chlorine, right? Right. So it's, so yeah, I think it's, it's bigger than that or well, different. Or right. Well, yeah. but what I would say is within your overall budget, figure out what's a reasonable, figure out what you want to spend on cutting boards, right? Like mm. somehow get to that number, right? And, and maybe, and maybe it's a variable number. Maybe it's some fraction of your overall budget. You know, one way you could look at it is you could look at, well, what are all of our, what are all of our ongoing expenses? And then what fraction of that is cutting boards? Now, granted, you may have neglected cutting boards for a few years, which means you're going to need to bump up the cutting board budget, but, but figure out, figure out what your cutting board budget is, and then figure out a system for evaluating the existing cutting boards and let let's say for the sake of discussion, you can afford to buy a hundred new cutting boards a year for a few years, at least figure out a way to find your 100 worst cutting boards, right? The most scarred, the most disgusting, and then buy new ones and then get rid of the the bad ones. Right. And then, and keep doing that every year until you, and, and what I would say maybe, and again, maybe this is over-engineering the problem, but you should have a cutting board budget. You should figure out what is your budget for replacing things like cutting boards, which wear out. And then every year, just buy the X number of cutting boards that you need. And then again, figure out a system to get rid of the worst ones and then replace them. Right. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to just every, you know, periodically replace 6,000 cutting boards. That's crazy, right? Like that's, that's probably not a good way to do things. Right. Right. It's like cutting board year. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that, that's helpful. I th- you know, I think we're, what we're at in, you know, sort of day one of this project was, um, let's figure out even what this, what, what a, um, what a rubric looks like, right. For lack of a better term, what, how would we even score this? And so I think what we, um, what we're kind of arriving on as we, as we develop this is, well, let's make it a continuum, right? Like, let's say that a perfect pristine, um, cutting board is a 10, you know, that I just I took the package off. And then I've got, um, a cutting board that, that has like, uh, biofilm all over it. And, and, you know, just is totally disgusting with food debris that I can't get out from scrubbing because it's so scored that that's a one. And, and what we want to do is, is push people towards tens, right? So, so this year when we go in and look at it, it may say, okay, you know what? You got a seven here. Is that is is that a must replace today? It's like no, it's it's not from a and this is a risk management decision. It's you know, not a recommendation to do that. Here are the risks of of continuing to use it, um, and and we're but when we get to a three, then 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 it would be like now you've reached the threshold that we got to dip into the cutting board budget um, for it. And so we're, we're, we're just trying to establish, and that's just cutting boards, right? Like there's a whole bunch of other things in, in, in kitchens, um, that were, you know, that, that, that could be on that. Think, uh, it was some of the stuff that, um, that I was, uh, thinking about and we were talking about today was, um, nonstick pans, uh, that have been scored and that are flaking versus stainless steel pans, um, and, or, or, or pots or, or whatever. And just the differences and these aren't, um, uh, you know, microbial food safety risks for the most part, but there are some physical hazard, uh, risk potentials. And so, so it was, I don't know, it was, it was cool to, to get, to get started on it and also to, to work with these partners who are like, you know, they are, um, and this goes back to something that we talked about in the IAFP episode, you know, 187, um, with, uh, with, um, Eric Moore from, uh, from Testo about they, these, these colleagues have, um, administrative support to move this forward, right? Like they're not fighting a battle of, Hey, let's even just go figure out where we need to put resources. They've already got 
the the support to spend the time to figure out where to put resources, what the riskiest things that that might be out there, um, you know, over the next year, and then the things that aren't so risky, um, but may just be you know uh, wear and tear and breakdown and reliability, um, and then that's you know the food safety aspect. You know, think about the same thing when it comes to um, safety and things like knives and you know being dull and leading to in, in, uh, extra. Um, uh, chance of cuts and uh, fire extinguishers and trip hazards and and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a, a true like extension day. And and the reason why I got so excited about this is um, I see this not just like helping out Wake County and you know which is you know, I have a vested interest in it because my kids are in Wake County schools, um, but also being able to turn this into something down the road a couple of years from now where we can share this with our family and consumer science extension agents so they and then train them on it and so that this is something they can do in schools in their counties um, as well so so being able to to really like look at the you know the full sort of extension piece like I, I'm happy to share my expertise doing this today and then uh, you know eventually once we figure out what what this instrument's going to look like we'll have someone else who goes out and and does these these assessments and then provide some sort of uh, information to to the risk managers uh, but but I get more excited when it's oh and I can also train you know, a hundred other people to do this in, in, in their locales and, and share this instrument, you know, to, to other States, um, to see if this is something that's, that's useful. And, and, and there was some, I mean, there's some interesting stuff, you know, thinking about thermometers, um, you know, having, uh, food storage that, you know, kids are using in these, in these classrooms in refrigerators and not having, um, a refrigerator thermometer to know what what the temperature is, especially if you're storing um, stuff over time, um, where you may have uh, increased likelihood of, of listeria growth, uh, and and not knowing about you know like thinking about just best practices there. So um, so anyway, that's it, it was it, it was a cool day, and uh, and I thought about you when I was out there. Cool, very yeah. good. Um, so that was that was on my list. What uh, what's going on? What's going on with you? What have you been doing? Well, so what I did a couple things today. Uh, one thing I did was I met with folks from um, uh, IT in the graduate school to try to figure out how to best track graduate students and all, all of the data, my data needs, because um, we're reinventing, reimagining, reengineering the way we manage our whole graduate student population. And so that was actually fun to sit with a couple of IT guys that I know and talk about what, like, so, so again, what, what many universities do, and this is going to sound crazy to people, but, you know, we have these systems for managing things and then we have the systems that manage the things the way that we want them to. And so, you know, you build your own shadow systems, right? Like, so, so if I want to track something, I build a spreadsheet that I populate with data that I get from somewhere else. And that's, that's let me, lets me do my job. So that was, that was fun. I mean, they're, they're nice guys and I enjoyed chatting with them. And then, um, and, and I, there, here's where I, I thought about you a little bit. Um, I met with the chairman of the county agents department and a 4-H volunteer. Um, oh, sorry, the, the 4-H agents department and a 4-H volunteer to do something around a food science food quiz bowl um, uh, to, to, to kind of engage students that are in these. I don't know if you know, uh, you probably do. There's cooking clubs. Uh, yes. Like food yeah, clubs. Yeah. It's a 4-H yep, thing, yeah. apparently. Yep. And I did not know anything about this. And they're nominally about cooking, not about food science. But obviously, there's a food science entry point there. And so we talked about some ways that we might work together. Um, and, and then they were also talking about their county fairs, and which made me think about you and the state fairs and all the work that you do with Jams and Jams. 
jelly. So, yeah. So I was thinking about you today, too. Oh, oh. Well, that's that's cool. Well, I have. Um, uh, uh, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you another story because mm. that's that's what we do. So I got to call this. I got to call this week. Sort of. Um, let's say a piece of information came to me. Um, that was an interesting, uh, another risk management question. Okay. So say you have organized a, um, volunteer, um, uh, volunteer event where people are coming together to make, uh, dried food, uh, meal packages to be donated to, uh, food banks in their, you know, in their communities. And, and, yeah, as part of this, it's you know I, I don't know how much um, we haven't really talked too much about this, but um, w- one of the things that one of my former students looked at in food banks and food pantries was just the high um, high reliance and focus on volunteers as your food handler workforce. Okay, yep. So so um, I, it, it, uh, there was a service project um, that I was aware of uh, as part of the one of the hockey organizations here in, in Raleigh, um, where you know kids, my kids' age, ten years old, would go out, went out, and um, would uh, take bulk items of of rice uh, from a big bag, and they would scoop it into smaller bags because you know getting a uh, I don't know eighty pound bag of rice at a food pantry doesn't really help. But having smaller packages, um, you know, that are transported that that can be then included into boxes or put on shelves so individuals can do them. That 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 helps. So this is it's like a big service project. Okay. Mm-hmm. So all right, you're with you're with me so far. So yep. Service yep. service and food, dried foods. So so what if you had like uh, 800 uh, volunteers doing this in one spot and at the, at one time? that that's a challenge to me, right? Like, like how are you going to train those volunteers? How are you going to make sure that, um, that they're not doing things that are, um, contributing to, to food safety? You've picked a food that's pretty, pretty low risk, but what kind of things might come to mind, uh, when it comes to food safety? And, um, the question that I got was, was about this, uh, you know, 800 individuals, um, and at the end of, uh, moving bulk food to smaller bags, um, one of the individuals realized, uh, one of the individuals who was scooping out stuff from a big bag realized that, uh, uh, between the time that they started and between the time that they ended, that his watch face had shattered and that, uh, he didn't know where all the little pieces of glass went. Uh Oh, uh-huh. So, so the question that I got was, uh, what do we do about it? And and I want to I want to I want to give you the magnitude and scale on this. Um, let's say it's like sixty thousand pounds mm-hmm. of food. So uh, I, I I said um, okay. Uh, I think that there are ways to to well. For, I mean, first of all, what are your what, what are your thoughts? What, what's going through your mind? Um, well, so how big is the exposure? Like, in other words, what were what were all the different foods? What was this? What did the stream look like? Is there a way to isolate just the foods that this guy may have contacted? So, um, yes, there would have been. <laughs> there oh, was nice uh-huh. at one point, but the uh, the uh, broken watch wasn't reported to the organizers until after the food had left the 
big congregate site and have been commingled. Oh dear. Right. So, right. So the first thing is to fix the problem for the next time. So right, you right. open a blank piece of paper and you write best practices when doing this. Number one, remove all jewelry. Right. Take <laughs> right? Your watch off. So that's the yeah. fixing. So we got we to keep our, our eyes on fixing it for the next time so we don't have this problem again. But yeah, short of, short of finding somebody who uh, has a, a commercial x-ray machine to x-ray and find this, I, I, I'm, I am. Yeah. Oh, oh, did we get there? All right. That's, nice. that, that's where we are today. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, is and 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 it's a it, you know, so so I don't know. I, I guess where we are right now is um, uh, working with some businesses who who do package products and seeing um, what the cost might be and what the disruption might be to run products down their line to see if we can uh, find uh, shards of glass. Or big chunks of glass, or you know, crystal. I guess it is, uh, with <laughs> to be you know specific in these bags, and and just figure it like. And this is it's like the cutting board question, right? It's weighing out what's the what's the cost to do this. Is it does it outweigh the cost of the product itself? And 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 I don't have an answer for that yet right now, but that's that's kind of where we're at is is having people take a look at that. And and this is one where it is such a like it, it's it's different than oh um and, and I'm going to be like trite about this oh a food employee at a processing plant walked in forgot to walk you know forgot to take their watch off and now we have a bunch of stuff in our product that has a monetary value but also is going to go on sale to someone and that's a clear adulterant versus we're trying to do something for food waste and both food waste and um, food disparity um, and and we the the hard part of getting this food together into these smaller bags has already been done. So now what's the extra cost to make sure that we are following the right steps to see if we can actually find, um, you know, these, these, uh, the, the adulterant in it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know next week when I see you, um, Oof. if I, if I get is, but it's a really, I mean, so, so that was like, and so, so now we're in it, like, and I, I agree with you. I mean, it makes me feel good that the, the two things that you mentioned is where is where I went, which was what kind you know, and I thought of it as well, what, how did you train these folks in the first place? Like, what did you tell them? And, and let's fix that. Let's fix what, what our operating procedures are. Let's fix how we train them. Let's, let's not look at this as a, um, I'm moving bulk item one in from big bag into bulk item two small bag. It is. This is food, and let's treat it as as food, and 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 it's going to be consumed. And we we need to keep food safety in mind. And so we really should be focusing on on things uh, related to this. Right. And um, other other things high on that list are um, some sort of question where you exclude anyone with illness. Right. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And then everybody washes their hands. They wear. Uh, they put on hand sanitizer. They wear gloves. You know, whatever you have to do. But the but the first step. So right right after, and probably this should even come above. Remove jewelry. Um, is, is, you know, if you are, if you have had vomiting or diarrhea in the last, um, you know, 72 hours, thank you, but no thanks. You can, you can go do something, you can go drive the truck yeah. or something, right? Like we're, right, right. we don't want you, you should... touching food. Um, right. and then number two is take your, take your jewelry off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, and, and again, and while we're brainstorming here, probably, 
we should have some sort of a policy for eating and drinking, right? Like if you, I mean, you know, you, you don't want people eating and drinking around food. You certainly don't want people drinking out of glass containers, right? Think more about glass, right? You want plastic right. cups. You want a closed, a closed top lid. Um, you want, you know, people, you know, this should, this, you know, this should be a smoking area that's outside away from all of this, right? All, all of those sort of good, you know, food sanitation, food, food handling 101 kind of stuff. And maybe, maybe even, maybe even put these people through a brief training, right? Uh, some, right. You know, some, some sort of a quick uh, online training they can do um, or, or, you know, something, right? Because clearly there's, this is a, this could be, this was bad and it, and it could have been not as bad and it could have been way worse. So might as well kind of get your ducks in a row for next time. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and think of it as, as a food system, like the way that you and I look at things, right? So how did, how, how, and the first question you asked, how could we have limited the scope of this? Well, if we had a, if we had told people, if something goes wrong, report it and we can isolate it. Exactly. Right? We're not, we're not looking at 61,000 pounds or whatever it is. Maybe we're looking at a thousand pounds or maybe right. we're looking at right. 50 pounds or what, whatever it is. Right. So, um, so that, you know, just, just, just treating this, treating, treating food donations, treating food as food, right? Like not treating it as, um, Hey, we're going to do something cool and, and we're going to, you know, it's a service project and it doesn't matter, like not like habitat for humanity, but I mean, bring that, as I say that it brings up a, a, like another example. It's not like if I was, um, if I was doing something with habitat for humanity and I was building something or I was like installing a gas stove, it's not like, Oh, let's get a bunch of volunteers to just like, you know, look at the Ikea instructions on this and try to figure out if it's done in a safe way. Right. Like I, I feel like we, in, in food sometimes, and this is a, um, I, I, I think a common thing because we eat every day and because we are very much, almost all of us are preparing some sort of food. Um, not, not just, you know, the food safety people that, that listen to the podcast, but the normals, that listen to the podcast, um, that, that it, there's a, sometimes a perception that, that we're all experts at this and it's, it's not that hard, but, but as you and I, and not, I mean, not just you and I, but as like others look at this in a way of, well, what's the best way to reduce risk? we, you know, treating, treating food like this, like a food processor does with modified steps and, and doing it in a way that's not like, um, cumbersome to the point where, where the work doesn't get done, but, but also takes protections, um, is, I think it, it's important. It's important for us to get in, integrated and involved in, in that. Yeah. And it, um, it's, it's not that hard <clears throat> until something goes wrong and then it's a mess. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Or it's not, yeah, exactly. Or it's not that important. Right. It's like everyone knows how to do it until something bad happens. And now, now you're, now you're faced with, okay, now what do I do with all this product? Then, and you know, so, and so let me, let me give you a bonus, bonus question part two that came up after, um, the, the, the watch glass situation was the same individual who contacted me about the glass said, um, a couple of days later goes, uh, 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 Hey, uh, so, uh, we just learned one of the food handlers had MRSA. And so oh. I was like, Oh, oh well, that's yeah, not oh, good. Okay. They, they shouldn't have that. Uh, the food handler right. shouldn't have that. That's not a good thing. You should not do that <laughs> again. Right. Back to back to my screening question. Right. 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 But, but so CDC has got some really good information ah, on okay. MRSA, right? So MRSA and food handlers. And, and so let me, I'll see if I can find this quick. Um, you know, what matters here and this, this is where, 
uh, you know, the stuff that, that, that you and I talk about and, and, you know, thinking about risk in a different way than, than I have before is okay. MRSA like on, on the, on the face value, that sounds bad. Where is the MRSA? What are we? And they're like, Oh, well they were wearing pants and it was a cut that was on their leg and it was a bandage that was clean. I was like, Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're good. No, no. Like, thanks for, thanks for checking with me on this, but nah, nothing to, like no increased risk <laughs> with, situation. And again, this is a dried, you know, thinking about the, the risk assessment side of things, this is a dried food product, right? So what, what would be the, the issue when it comes to MRSA? Well, you know, passing MRSA from, from person to person, um, would be a problem. It's not really probably going to happen in this product. Um, um, and MRSA or just regular staph aureus, um, becomes a, a problem in this type of food after I cook it and then, you know, have it at, you know, the wrong temperature and we have toxin formation and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, for this, for this one, you know, good, good question to ask now, but different answer. And I think it was, I think it shocked the person who asked me the question where they thought that the MRSA was going to be worse, not worse, but like, oh no, now we really have a problem with this product. And I was like, no, no, X-ray. No, the, yeah, the glass is actually a worse problem. Right, Cause right. Because that's probably in the food. <laughs> right, right. Whereas the MRSA is probably not. Yeah, so I've, I yeah. found we'll link to we'll link to a CDC uh, PDF um, on uh, MRSA in the workplace. Um, but basically it just has a, a, single, a single sentence on food. And uh, apologies if you're squeamish, uh, stop listening right now. Um, restrict food handlers with a lesion containing pus, such as a boil or infected wound that is open and draining unless it is covered in accordance with food code 20. Uh, 2009. Yep. So, and then yep. a link to FDA food code 2009 and probably also subsequent FDA food codes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, so yeah, um, uh, those were, those were the two, uh, you know, my, my, I guess my, my two, my two big things, but that was, yeah, it was, uh, uh, a good, like a good exercise in, in, uh, food safety and extension. And I, and I hope, I hope we find a good solution for this, um, you know, for this food, because I would, I would hate to, for it to go to waste and, and not, I mean, truthfully, the, uh, individuals who are volunteering, I'm not worried about wasting their time at all. Um, the, that, that part is done. Great. Thank you for volunteering. What I'm really concerned about is at some point making a decision like, you know what, it's not, th- this is a, um, a hundred thousand dollar answer. And if you took $50,000, you would be able to donate way more food than what you have in the first place. And now we just have a bunch of food waste. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, so we, I mean, we, we've been promising our, our listeners for a while now, Don, you probably, Mm -hmm. probably know where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. We, we have, um, what is known in, in the technical term as a, uh, crap ton of feedback, uh, dots, that we need to we need to address in in our in our super secret um, Dropbox folder, and I think we should try and do all of them. All right. What do you think? I'm down for it. Let's do it. Some of these go back as far as May. <laughs> um, so, so let's. Can we do the 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 first one that just came in? Uh, yeah, yeah. Literally 15 minutes before we started. Yeah. Um, so so I will. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll start here. So this one comes from. Um, Joe Rosensteel, who, uh, f- uh, is a follower on Twitter, somebody I follow, um, let's, let's call him, let's call him deep cherry. Um, so, so Joe writes, um, 
Uh, my podcast co-host and I were talking about something we both appreciate. Joe, 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 I would plug your podcast if only I knew what it was. Um, so we'll try to we'll try to find that so we can plug Joe's podcast. Um, my podcast co-host and I were talking about something we both appreciate: fancy preserved cherries for cocktails. When we realized that we really didn't know anything about them from a food safety perspective. He had a jar of Amarena cherries, um, white and blue jars, semi-candied cherries preserved in syrup that he was storing at room temperature for almost a year. It had no mold or visual signs. The product deteriorated, but was reluctant to keep using it since it just seemed like it had been a long time. Um, I was appalled that he was storing it at room temperature after he had opened the jar, but turns out, uh, all caps, thanks, Joe, um, online sources, where's my bell? Uh, uh, Online sources seem to indicate that it's appropriate to do so. I've had a bad experience storing Luxardo cherries in the fridge once I've opened the jar. Which, uh, Luxardo is another one of these fancy um, cherries. That, and I should say, too, both of these kind of cherries are like the, the high-end hipster version of what maybe you knew as a kid. I knew as a kid as maraschino cherries. Yes. Uh, maraschino cherries are basically not food anymore, but these these are what maraschino cherries evolved, what evolved into maraschino cherries once the, the processed food uh, business got, got involved. So... Um, all right, so um, I have a bad experience storing Luxardo cherries in the fridge. Um, dots start to form on the surface inside the jar in three-ish months, and I've and I've had to throw the whole jar out. I would say, Joe, you chose to throw the whole jar out. I thought it was mold, but the internet says it could be crystals forming in the syrup, um, and I should have stored them at room temperature. So anyway, so he gets down around to the like saying, okay, I've, I'm in Southern California. I have no central AC. The apartment can get to 68 degrees during the day. Um, he still, he still feels, sorry, not 68, 98. Um, sorry. Yeah. I, I, am not good with numbers. Uh, that's a, that's a nine, 98 (laughs) degrees, um, uh, during the day in the summer months, it makes me feel like I should still refrigerate them. Um, what basically, what should I do? Um, can I make more than three Manhattans from one jar before I have to throw them out? I'm like, Joe, Joe, just drink more Manhattans. That's the solution. Um, so, you know, I, I had I was vaguely aware of these, but but not really. I did a little bit of Googling. Um, of course, the first thing I did was I checked out uh, the USDA Food Keeper app, which is my go-to for all of these things, and it doesn't say anything about, about these uh, fancy foods. Um, obviously, if they're sealed, they can last a long time. Um, uh, the, and, and I, yeah, it does sound like that, that his experience with an open jar that was refrigerated could be, um, uh, sugar crystallization. Obviously they would need to, we'd need to, to do some research on this. Um, it, it does, it does appear from looking at the internet that the manufacturers do not recommend freezing, nor do they men recommend refrigeration. And that those, th- these things are, uh, definitely shelf stable. So uh, obviously one thing he could do, uh, would be to increase his intake of Manhattans, but um, there's there's also other things um, you can use these on. They look like you know the recommendations. You can use them as like cherries on ice cream and things like that. So there's there's things you can do to use them up faster. Um, I looked at the ingredient list. I looked at these things on Amazon and, and zoomed in on the labels. The Luxardo uh, brand has is fifty is made from fifty percent candied cherries and fifty percent syrup. The ingredients list is sugar. Sorry, cherries, sugar, cherry juice, glucose. We should explain that sugar means um, sucrose and glucose is something different, but they're both they're both essentially sugars. Uh, citric acid, etc., um, etc. Sorry, um, and then the other the Amarena cherries. Uh, one one of the brands uh, has sour black cherries, wa- sugar, water. Glucose, 
glucose syrup. So again, sugar and glucose both. Uh, so you could have, and, and again, the way the ingredient list works, you could actually have more sugar in it than actual cherries. Um, so these things are really sugar laden. Uh, sour cherry juice, coloring, grape extract, grape skin extract, citric acid. So my opinion is that these products are low water activity. Uh, because of the high sugar content and also citric acid, so they're they're lower pH. So um, I, I think it's probably okay to go with the manufacturer recommendation here to um, to to store them in you know as shelf stable products. So again, probably the water activity is something like peanut butter, which we also store um, uh, as a shelf stable product. So, uh, but again, probably from a quality point of view, not really good to leave around for for more for more than a year. So, have you got have you got any? Uh, I sent you see I see you sent me a link here. Um, have oh, you got I any got advice? Stuff. Yeah, oh, I got I got stuff. All right, I got I got a, another link coming here. Um, um, so, and I'm, I, I don't know, and I, I, I'm coming in this a little bit cold, the difference between, um, the, uh, you know, maraschino cherries and the, um, La Luxardo cherries from, from a, like, you know, how, how much sugar difference there is, but the maraschino cherry, there is, there's a couple of things here. One, um, there's a, and this is going to segue into something else we're going to talk about. There's a good omnibus, uh, episode on Maraschino <laughs> Cherry. Of course there of is. Course there, right. Right. On the history of it. But as I was Googling Maraschino Cherry water activity, cause I thought I could find that I just stumbled across something, um, that is, uh, in food science education and it's, uh, the title is Maraschino Cherry, a laboratory lecture unit. And it is a um, orientation one credit course at Oregon State University called Maraschino Cherry, and, which is a really cool thing. Like you know, so an introduction, you know, an introductory course. It basically steps through how do you make maraschino cherries and talks a little bit about um, you know the safety of it, but then goes into a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of information about, um, you know, sort of the chemistry of it, but we get into water activity and it says that the, doesn't actually list the water activity here in the, um, in the, uh, paper, but it does talk about a high sugar con, uh, content at 74 bricks, which seems really, really high. Um, it, like just a lot, a lot of sugar. And so I agree with you that the water activity is probably really low and, and that wouldn't, wouldn't be a safety issue, but I have something else to add to this. Go for it. Um, I, I, I used to work in a bulk food store, uh, in, in when I was growing up, I've mentioned this on the podcast and we, at Christmas time, this was like a whole, whole thing of people making fruit cakes and, and just bringing in candied, um, you know, candied peel and cherries. And I'll tell you, they, uh, those, let me tell you, Don, um, maraschino cherries would sit at room temperature in this bulk food store for 11 months out of the year. Cause after January 1st, no one's <laughs> buying maraschino cherries and I would never, ever fill them. Ooh. And, and they'd sit there and they'd be fine. Ooh. And then at the, you know, you don't want to be the first person to make your fruit cake next nope. year nope. because they've been, your, your quality Ooh. is maybe <laughs> not low. But after the first person goes through and gets a bunch of them for whatever baking that they do, then, then it started to get filled. But I, I, I can never think of a time where we saw any mold growth on it. And that was something that I would like, you know, that was in my purview as a, as a 16 year old and 17 year old, uh, in this, in this store, I, I, you know, I was, I was filling those, those things and I can't, can't remember, um, ever seen a, a quality issue with them. So I, I think that would be, you know, based on just how, like, we're not talking about 
a water activity. We're talking a really low water activity. It's just so high, high sugar. Well, and so, yeah, so bricks, right? So we'll link to this, this page on, on bricks. Um, one gram, one degree bricks is one gram of sugar per, uh, 100 grams of aqueous solution. So 74 bricks essentially means 74% sugar. I mean, it's not quite a percent, but, but that is, that is a Boat toad, but boat ton, butt ton, boat boatload, boat 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 <laughs> boat ton of sugar. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, like we're and, and I mean, you t- take some maraschino cherry. It's just a full out full out sugar with a little bit of um, little bit of cherry flavor to it. Um, so, but anyway, who knew that there was a class on maraschino cherries with one credit at Oregon State University? That's fascinating. FS. FST, hey, they're stealing our the name of our class. It's FST 102. No, don't get that confused with FST 102, Food Safety Talk 102, which I'm sure we didn't talk about maraschino cherries. Um, <laughs> but no, this is a good one. So Joe, and I did find Joe's um, uh, podcast. It's called Defocused. Uh, it's Joe Rosenstiel and Dan Sturm, and it's a casual podcast about tech movies and whatever else we feel like. Oh, so so it's another. Oh, it's from the incomparable. It's my, from the my, incomparable. My yeah. favorite, uh, my favorite um, podcast network uh, because they have the best logo. I, I have a T-shirt with that robot uh, microphone logo. That's a great logo. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So um, anyway, thanks to to fellow podcaster uh, Joe, and we know he's a listener because he referred to us as Doctor Don and Professor, and Professor Chapman. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the best. Cool. All right. Good. Hey, there was another piece of feedback that didn't make it into the feedback loop mm. um, that came in via the via the Twitter from uh, from someone who we've talked about before. So it's all in the public realm. You you, were, you answered a little bit about this. Uh, let me find it. My name. Gotta always gotta look for my menchies, Don. Um, it was about flies. I can't find the. Oh, there it is from uh, Dan Dan Latandra. The French, double, French double, Dan. double entendre, as we call double, it. Yeah, deep, deep double, deep double entendre. Um, and so he linked to a food safety news article from uh, today um, that uh, references a uh, paper that was in Journal of Food Protection about uh, that was co-authored by Trevor Suslo, who we know. Um, and again, I haven't. Uh, I haven't read, uh, taken the time to read this paper uh, this afternoon, but uh, the paper is called Occurrence of Escherichia coli O157H7 in Pest Flies Captured in Leafy Greens Plots Near a Beef Cattle Feedlot. And uh, from from the abstract, uh, the highlights, uh, E. coli O157 was common in flies captured in leafy greens plots near the feedlot. E. coli 157H7 carriage rates of house, face, flesh, and blow flies were similar. Stable flies had lower E. coli 0157H7 carriage than other the other four fly groups. Um, 0157 carriage of total flies was not affected by distance up to 180 meters. Needed to determine risk for leafy green contamination by pest flies, and and so after reading, you know, the the abstract, uh, you know, briefly while I was in uh, while I was in the in the bathroom uh, when I saw <laughs> this when, on Twitter, when we read all our abstracts, I read a lot of abstracts in the toilet. Um, it uh, you know, I, I think the the message is if if you have E. coli one five seven in a feedlot close by, can you find it in flies in a field? Yes. Um, what's the risk? Don't know. Well, and and in fact, um, friend of the pod um, uh, cast uh, and and uh, past guest uh, Mike Batts 
says he has read it. So props to you, Mike. Oh, good. He we says the head, the headline. Yeah, we should. We should. <laughs> the headline is wrong. It does not confirm transfer. It right. demonstrates similar PFGE patterns in mature in manure, flies, and greens, which says more about reservoir than root of transmission. It, yes, it could be. It could be, in fact, that the leafy greens are giving it to the flies who are spreading it to the manure, right? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, and again, I, I have to say, I have not, I have not read, I have not read it. So we'll, we'll go, but, but I mean, I trust, I trust bats. Yep. And, and, uh, like, like people who listen to the podcast, they get some of their food safety news from us. So here's food safety news, uh, with no, uh, with, with very little commentary. <laughs> It's there. Go check out. Go check out the paper. Indeed, and and yeah, and we'll and we'll and you should like follow. Look at the whole Twitter Twitter thread. Uh, Bats chimes in with another paper that he thinks does confirm transfer. I talk about. Um, I, I cite some earlier work from Bob Buchanan, uh, which looked at fl- fruit flies and oh one five seven eight seven. So yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a it's a topic that's worthy of a longer discussion than we're going to have today. Absolutely. Have you have you been checking out? Uh, this is uh, some feedback as well, um, and this is from uh, uh, we'll just call him uh, Deep Suvide. Um, I'm going from the top down, and mm-hmm. so uh, uh, saw this post on Reddit and thought you two would find it interesting. Talk about foreign objects and packaged foods, uh, and this is a Reddit uh, Reddit Reddit link, um, and it was just a cool picture of. A snake, and we'll link to this in, in show notes, uh, 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 that is wrapped around a bunch of strawberries. But, um, you know, so free snake, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, but he just got back to us and said uh, some more Reddit content for us, and it was about sous vide everything. Um, and it was just a huge, long subreddit on, on, sous, on sous vide. And, you know, people making lots of recipes and, and things out there. And so... Um, it, I I saw your um, your comment, um, and so this this is it. Um, and I'll, I'll read from the Reddit. I know um, sous vide everything. Get some love around here, and I generally think their videos are pretty good. But in their latest video, they tried cooking a steak for a week at 122 degrees. Based on every piece of information I've ever read, anything below 130 for extended periods is really playing with fire, as spoilage is concerned. Well, I doubt anyone is going to try this experiment at home. It seems really irresponsible of them to not even mention the risks of cooking that way. It bothers me because sous vide done right, in my opinion, is safer or safer uh, than just about any cooking method, but you have to respect the rules. Um, and so, uh, you know, I checked out the video and basically the that's what the uh, what it says. Um, and so uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I wrote a very uh, short response. Um, <laughs> 122 degrees Fahrenheit is a really bad idea. Um, bacteria grow at 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, at least some of them do. And uh, it's 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 a bad idea. I mean, it's, you could have a situation where you could get some, some spores uh, germinating and growing. And, and I think some of the sensible commenters on Reddit um, do, do point this out. So, yeah, uh, 122, a bad idea, in my opinion. Once- yeah, 122 is low. So, um, append and I, you know, where do I go? I like to go to Appendix A um, as my as my starting point for some things. And so, Appendix A only goes as low as 130. Um, and so, even you know if, why, you Ben? Know, you know why? I, I, tell me, tell me about that. Because they don't want cook, people cooking things below 130. <laughs> they really don't. Because are we going to get? Um, so. I wonder the and, and this is this is a question for for you and I, not not looking into um, the 
the thermal death curve, uh, thermal sorry, thermal death curve, uh, thermal death curve for salmonella and beef emulsions and tubes from <laughs> Goodfellow and Brown, 1978. Um, if we went down to like 128, 126, would you expect that you would still get a five log reduction in? Um, you know, of salmonella in, in meat, for instance, but just for like, you would have to go for, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of minutes or, or do we have a situation where, um, you may still get that, that grow that death, but you will also get growth of other things like, um, CBOT and stuff. What's your, what are your, what are your thoughts here? Well, one thing we should point out is that without turning this into a treatise on D values and Z values, but we know that, um, oh, well, sorry, here we go. Treatise on D values and Z values. Here it is. So D, treatise, treatise D, D, look this up on Wikipedia. We'll, we'll, we'll try to link to it. Um, D value is the decimal reduction time. That is the time required to decimate a population of bacteria. That is to reduce its concentration by 90%. So, so the, the D value is the time in minutes at a certain temperature to give that one log reduction. The Z value tells you how the logarithm of the D value changes with temperature. And so we assume that that log relationship, that log linear relationship is true, but it's only true over, it's not true over infinite uh, 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 temperature range. And so the question I would ask is what what's the data in support of the D values and Z values? And then you'd have to be careful about, about extrapolating. So, yeah. So that's, uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, you, you did. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's something, there's something there. I think what, like going back to the Reddit post, I think people are trying to push below, like basically draw a line, right? Below, um, 130 and saying, oh, well, here's what the, um, here's what we would expect to see at, um, you know, going down from one, 165 down to 130. So let's continue that line down and see how, how long we have to do it. So to, to continue on to push the envelope down to 122. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of established that that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm looking right now, I'm looking at the, uh, the NACMIF. Uh, challenge study document, which has a wonderful uh, table of growth limits for microorganisms. Uh, the maximum growth temperature observed for Bacillus cereus is uh, 55 degrees C. That's 131. So you're getting um, Bacillus cereus growth without a doubt. Um, the maximum growth for Salmonella is 46. So let's just convert that real quick. Uh, 46 converts to 114. So you're probably not getting salmonella growth. Uh, perfringens, it's 52. So you're getting perfringens growth because per, perfringens stops growing at about 125. So, so you you can get yep. you can get pathogen growth. Clearly, you can get pathogen growth. So this is this is this is not it's a bad uh, idea. Not a good idea. Nope, not a good yep. idea. So, so I mean, and this is one where it's like you might kill you might kill something, but you're encouraging the growth of other things. Well, right? like, and and we don't know. I mean, people don't typically do a lot of experiments with spoilage organisms, but you know, guess what? If there are spoilage organisms that that grow at uh, that temperature, and I'm sure that there are, um, you're going to get a pretty nasty piece of meat, right? Right, right, yeah. Well, and and I might have told this story a while ago. 
Um, but I tell it in, in a lot of the classes that I do for um, HACCP and variances and validation and verification for uh, retail HACCP um, uh, stuff. And in fact, the plug this is taking you and I out to Seattle next week as I'm teaching that class. Um, and um, one of the stories that I, that I tell is one of the you know sort of first times that I'd talked to um, a chef about variances. He told me a story um, about time temperature control and sous vide. And he was trying to do like a 48 hour, um, cook on, uh, beef short ribs. And he dialed it down to like 120, 121, 122 or something. And then came in the next day, whatever it takes. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then came in the next day, like did it at the end of service and started it and said, okay, well, I'll see what it looks like tomorrow and came in and like the immersion circulator had blown up with a whole bunch of like marinade and, um, not, not blown up, like just like water and marinade was everywhere. The bag had, there was a gas former in the bag and it, Ooh, yeah. it exploded it and, um, and it was a mess. And he said, uh, it need to be hotter than that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, that's so, what we yeah, call the scientific done. method. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there you go. So he he decided he'd go, yeah, uh, go a little higher. Um, so, um, what else was I going to tell you? I think that was it. That's all I was going to tell you about about sous vide um, on this one. Um, all right, we've got what else we have? Here? Oh well, we got. Um, we've, oh wait, we've so messaged, sorry. Let's say added to the backlog. We <laughs> good. Yeah. So. Hold on one second. So uh, we have uh, this, so this so 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 the uh, the last episode um, was named for uh, <laughs> how you handle English muffins. Uh, we have uh, we have a new a new bit of feedback from that same person. Um, uh, he says, "Have room for a new question in the backlog." The latest episode of Ali Ward's Ologies podcast interviewed a bleach chemist from Clorox. One of Ward's Patreon supporters asked about the effectiveness of acetic acid as a disinfectant. The chemist touts bleach's superiority, of course, but I live in a household that keeps a mix of lemon juice and vinegar in a spray bottle. Me too, Scott. Me too. Um, uh, FST 165 show notes linked to an article about salmonella remaining on chicken washed with a vinegar lemon mixture. Should I assume a similar mix is also unlikely to be good at disinfecting countertops, even if let sit for a few minutes? Um, yeah, uh, uh, yes. The short answer is yes. It's not going to work very well. The longer answer is we well, probably have an email somewhere from Carl Custer about this. <laughs> and, and it started with... With Pete Snyder's work in in uh, you know using vinegar, you know using acetic acid as a, as a sanitizer, and I think if I remember that cor- like correctly, um, it does a pretty good job of changing pH if there's not a lot of contamination around, and it doesn't work really well. So like, but not as well like similar to chlorine, but not as well as chlorine when there are uh, there's filth. So right. it's good on clean. And it will, you know, take stuff that's that's remaining, um, uh, take care of stuff that's that's remaining on a clean surface. But if there's any sort of uh, debris, it doesn't do very well. Yeah, and there's, it, there's there's a reason why we use uh, uh, bleach because it's it's cheap and it works, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and I downloaded uh, so uh, um, Ali Ward's Ologies is a family favorite uh, oh. podcast. Yeah, I haven't. I don't. Danny listens to it because um, now that she realizes that podcasts aren't just for shut-ins, and she listens to more podcasts than I do. Um, <laughs> oh, she, take that! Yeah, 
Right, right. Now it's now it's for everybody. Now it's uh, yeah, uh, world of politics. Oh, now that now that she likes them, they're right, cool. Right. All right, now they're cool. Um, anyway, Ali Ward's Ologies is is one of her favorite podcasts, and, the, and, and my kids love it. They we listen to uh, I've listened to it with them a couple of times, but um, most notably they listen to it on the way to carpool or in carpool. Um, and uh, Astro Katie. Uh, from Twitter, who's yep. a faculty member at, uh, at NC State, was was Sam. That's Sam's favorite podcast episode is with Astro Katie talking about um, astronomy and uh, and the ology of astronomy. Uh, so anyway, check out Ali Ward's uh, po- uh, Ologies podcast. It's kind of cool. Oh, and speaking of podcasts, um, we will again uh, plug the Omnibus uh, uh, podcast on uh, Canning, which you mentioned to me, and then uh, I, I got into it a little bit uh, on uh, on Twitter. So and and on in the Facebook group. So so I they have a, a private Facebook group which I joined specifically to comment <laughs> on the on the the episode about Canning. Um, and and I have to say, you know, a huge huge props to to John and Ken for doing a great job on the podcast and for also being very you know very graciously accepting my my feedback i think that i i did i managed i think not to upset too many of the folks and some many of them did uh in their replies to me refer to me as dr don so i'm assuming that they know me from one of one of my many uh (laughs) one of my many (laughs) appearances on the internet so so thanks to that uh and and thanks to for everybody for the great discussions um on twitter and in the, the the facebook group and i would say too um if you i mean if you if you are listening to the Omnibus podcast, I would I joined the Facebook group. I mean, nominally to comment, but it's a great bunch of folks. They're really the kind of just like the the kind of folks that you would expect would listen to that wonderful, lovely podcast. So so uh, two thumbs up, one thumbs up from me from the, for the Facebook group uh, for Omnibus podcast called the Futurelings. Awesome! And you were wearing your Futurelings uh, shirt. I was the other uh, day. Yes, the other day. Uh, so my favorite, I, I I'm not going to read your entire thread, but we will link to it in, in show notes. And I, and I think you did a great job. You used a little tweet storm from drafts. I, I, yep. my, is my guess. Yep. Good job. Um, and, uh, one of the, my, my favorite comment was, um, it was John's response, which was, um, uh, hopefully future links will be sentient seaweed and all of this will be <laughs> curiosity to them. Also Don is being a pedant, which I loved. Yes. Um, but no, no, it was good. I, I, I listened to, so I met, we mentioned this in, in, uh, the podcast that we, um, uh, I think we, we mentioned it, uh, at IAFP. I listened to it in the, um, on my way home, uh, uh, last week. And, um, I, you know, it was one of these, one of these situations where the, the history of canning is really fascinating. And there was some stuff in there. I knew a little bit of it, but I didn't know nearly the in-depth, uh, aspect that, that John and Ken, uh, went into, uh, on that. Um, and then as, as you point out in your, in your tweets, it, um, it, it went, uh, there, there was some science misgivings, uh, uh a, a little, the food safety aspect of canning, um, that, that, that you, that you just said, Hey, here's some, here's some information about, uh, what the, what the data says. And it was, it was good, but it's a great, I would, I recommend that podcast to anyone. I think it's, I think they're, um, just the way that they, uh, interact with each other is, is really great. And they pick some really cool, uh, topics. Uh, the first one, um, that got me hooked on it. And I tweeted about this a while ago was, uh, their, um, episode on the Tylenol murders, which is really all about food tampering and food fraud. And it, it was, I, I remember every, every once in a while 
I'll remember what I, where I was when I was listening to a specific podcast, and I was running uh, in southern Ontario last summer uh, around my uh, father-in-law's uh, neighborhood while I listened to that podcast, and it was like just really, really, really fascinating uh, episode. But yeah, check out the Canning episode as well, um, and then uh, you know uh, check out Don's tweets. Yeah, and you know it's so funny we think about where we were when we were heard something and something about that connection. So I can tell you that I was listening to the podcast on my way to pick up the dog from the kennel after getting back from IAFP and then coming after having picked up the dog, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to listen to this whole episode. I'm not going to have anything to say about it. And then I had picked the dogs up. I was on the way back. I'm driving the car and they're like, oop, they went off the rails. Oop, 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 oop. All right. So trying to get out drafts, time to start typing, talking into drafts while I drive the car, trying to crash the car because they don't want to like, you know, don't want to miss anything. And and then that, and that eventually became the drafts tweet storm. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, cool. Uh, all right, so we've got. Uh, did we do this one? Uh, did we do cooking in a bag? In cooking on papillot, papillot. I don't you know, know uh, but there's one before that, right? Oh, okay. Um, I'm just on, I'm just randomly clicking. Oh, okay. okay, so the next one, if we're going down the list in in uh, reverse chronological, right? Uh, uh, first in, last out. Uh, which is terrible for food safety. Um, so uh, this is uh, from um, uh, Galen, who says, please share all details freely. Um, I don't think I gave him a nickname, but let's read his question. Uh, started listening to your show after Merlin recommended it. Thanks, Merlin. Uh, he's a PhD student who does a lot of statistical modeling. Um, he's a big fan of it's complicated and it depends. Um, he uh, recently started buying a weekly fresh veggie box from a local farm co-op in Canberra, Australia. Did we talk about this? No, I don't think okay. so. Um, uh, it's a large styrofoam box. He, pay, he pays a flat fee to get a box full of whatever vegetables are in season. So lots of unwashed greens mixed with onions, root vegetables, tomatoes. Uh, groceries are pretty expensive in Australia. The stuff he gets from the local supermarket are usually not great quality. But the vegetables that come in this box from the co-op are fantastic. So here's the problem, he says. The co-op doesn't deliver these boxes directly to all customer houses, but instead only drops them to a handful of houses around the city, and people then pick up the boxes from there. The closest drop-off location to me is about a five-minute walk from my home, and it's on my path home from work. This usually means I get my groceries as I walk home from work. I have to pick them up from a box on a doorstep where it's been sitting outside for sometimes hours. In the winter, this feels okay, as the maximum daytime temperatures are often below 6 degrees C, but in the summer, the outside temperature was above 40, is above 40 degrees C most days. The vegetables get damp and sweaty. How risky is this? So do you have any thoughts before I weigh in? Um, yeah. So uh, recently um, my, um, my department um, is participating in a, being one of these centralized uh, drop-off spots for, for produce um, you know, co-ops. And, um, and it's not just produce here. So I, I thought a little bit about how we're, how we're handling things. Um, and I have some like different food safety, uh, situations. So people are, you know, we have meat, um, and eggs and dairy, like milk involved in, in our co-op. And so the thought here is, um, we don't have a lot of fridge space to, to have like, you know, 12 or 15 or 20 boxes, depending on the week to be dropped off and, and all sitting in, in cold storage. So, so what we have been doing 
is uh, setting up a situation where people will bring their own cooler bag and put, you know, the day that it's going to be dropped off, bring a, um, you know, uh, a freezer pack within that cooler bag and leave it sort of out in the delivery room and then transferring the stuff from their box into that cooler bag. Uh, so they're, so they're keeping the, um, the stuff cold that, that needs time temperature control for, for safety. Um, when it comes produce co-ops, one of the things that is, um, that I, that I took some, actually took some pictures of, uh, of sort of farm stand and, um, uh, farmer's market stuff when I was in Canada a couple of weeks ago about leafy greens. My only concern would be if there was some sort of a cut leafy green here, I think that things get slimy and that's gross for the whole, you know, whole head of cabbage or, uh, you know, tomatoes sweat or, you know, uh, fresh herbs is probably the one that, that is going to deteriorate pretty quickly. But when it comes to safety, I think we, you get in trouble, uh, when you've got a, a, you know, cut leafy greens, cut spinach, cut arugula that's sitting in a Ziploc bag, um, and may have been washed, may not have been washed, but now it's, it's going to be sitting here for, um, you know, potentially, uh, a long time, but at high temperatures. We're not just talking ambient temperatures. Is points out, or very deep, cautious in Canberra um, <laughs> uh, points out Galen. Um, but uh, but we're we're looking at um, you know 40, 40 plus Celsius uh, is is pretty warm. So I would expect that if if I had a pathogen on that in that bag of cut leafy greens at 40 C it's going to grow pretty quick. We're, we're no longer looking at four hours. It's going to be a little faster than that for, to increase risk by, uh, uh you know, increase of a log, um, of, of contamination. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, th- this has made me think of, um, uh, th- there's this wonderful outbreak, um, uh, which is detailed in the Lancet from 1990, uh, called bird attack on milk bottles, possible mode of transmission yes. of Campylobacter jejuni to man. Um, which, uh, was, was really basically what was happening is these birds, uh, these magpies had learned, uh, that, that their milk would be delivered to people's homes and they would go and they would peck the, into the top of the milk bottle to get some milk and in turn contaminate those milk bottles with Campylobacter. And people would say, Oh, that's something wrong with my milk, but I guess I'll just drink it anyway. Um, uh, so, and I, this, this, I don't know why I think about this, except this was one of these weird outbreaks that I, I read about, uh, early on in my, in my career. Um, what I will say before we leave the topic of leafy greens, um, yeah, you're, you're right. The, the risks with intact produce is, is lower than for cut produce, but, but here's the thing, like I always worry and I always, I'm probably overly cautious at removing damaged leaves. Uh, when I, when I, um, we, when we buy head lettuce and I, I, um, prep it at home. Uh, I, I'm probably throw away more than I should. Uh, but I just, I, you know, again, I try to, I try to get rid of anything that looks like it might be a harbor site or a place where, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a damage to the leaf. And if there were pathogens there, they might've, they might've grown. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess like knowing more about what else is in the box matters. Right. Like, right. Like, like, you know, so, so if you're, um, I can't, you know, I can't think of things that I would see in a produce box that are box that are too much like minimally processed, but, but who knows, maybe we're not, you know, maybe that's a value add thing that, that someone's doing, um, in these, uh, in these co-op boxes. So cool. Good, good question. Um, 
All right. So going down the list, come on, please. Oh yeah, here it is. Here's cooking in the bags. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, this one comes from, uh, deep, uh, deep red seaweed. Uh, and the message says, uh, if I, if I recall correctly, last time you referred to me as deep red seaweed, I'm the agricultural economic student out in Truro again, Truro, North Carolina, or Truro, North Carolina, Truro, Nova Scotia. Uh, shout out to, uh, um, a nice part of the world. Uh, well, I've had, uh, and while well, I have had and am having a lovely time this summer working with youth in backcountry hiking and camping setting, which poses, poses its own food safety issues, my question this time is regarding a manner of cooking, which I've been unable to do in the last little, but has been sitting around in the back of my head. More or less, I've been thinking about cooking en papillote. Uh, that's the uh, French French way to say that. Uh, cooking, and how would you say that in New Jersey? In, in, in papillote? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. And papillote. And papillote, that's right. Um, uh, so um, where are we? In uh, papillote. Uh, wrapping <laughs> food in parchment uh, paper or bamboo leaf with water and spices to let it steam slightly as it bakes. Well, I would expect the process of cooking in papote uh, would end up destroying almost all the bacteria on the papers. Uh, and leaves during cooking, I was wondering about the difference between these surfaces would be. And looking through some of the literature, I can't really find much about how bamboo leaves would be cleaned before culinary serving uses. Well, there is some reference to bamboo having antimicrobial properties. This most likely seems to be in relation to a liquid made out of bamboo, extracting liquids and similar. It's just one of those little questions that's been in the back of my head for the last little bit. Uh, any thoughts or details you could uh, give would be helpful. Um, so, yeah, so uh, let me, so, well, so this, 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 uh, this, this, this one drew me in. So, um, I think the short answer is that the process would probably destroy anything on the parchment or the bamboo leaf. Um, and, and in terms of bamboo, I think the bamboo is probably microbiologically not any more contaminated than any meat that you, that you would use to cook uh, in the bamboo leaves. Um, I did do a little bit of Googling around, um, bamboo because I wanted about the safety of bamboo. Um, there is an article which we will link to uh, called A Mass Cyanide Poisoning from Pickling Bamboo Shoots because uh, I, was, I was curious as to whether bamboo had toxins in it. And it, sound, it looks like bamboo shoots do, um, but the, the extent to which bamboo leaves have the toxin, uh, I don't know. I did, we di I did find um, a really interesting website from um, uh, James and Natalie, who are apparently newlyweds and nature lovers. Um, uh, and they, uh, they have a post on their website entitled, Is Bamboo Edible? or is it toxic? Um, and, uh, so you can read that post. Um, I would, uh, I would say, um, uh, t treat it with a game, a grain of salt because they are not toxicologists. Um, so I guess what I, what I would say, um, is, uh, if you have a choice, I would take some parchment paper with you rather than, um, bamboo leaves, which would be of uncertain safety. Um, and again, uh, indigenous cultures do cook in bamboo leaves, but they probably have figured out which bamboo leaves to use that won't make you sick. So, so, uh, or if they didn't, uh, they died and they, and they left no history. So, uh, so be, be careful about using just random, uh, bits of botanical, um, uh, foliage for cooking because they can be toxic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have used this technique a little bit. Um, so I've cooked in parchment paper. I've never done it in bamboo. Um, and I have 
I have defaulted, and I'm going to send you uh, something from Serious Eats to for show notes here. I've defaulted to when I do want to cook or you know sort of, I guess steam roast something. I use um, aluminum foil or tin foil as it's known in some places because um, I just find it easier to to work with. And I didn't find the difference between the parchment paper was just a, like truthfully a pain in the ass. Um, and so, uh, serious eats talks a little bit about this, but I want to point you to something that, that is a full food safety talk. No, no, um, on this, uh, on this website. Um, and so, you know, they kind of go through like what kind of environment do you, or what you want to create a steam environment with liquid. So that's, I've done that with uh, lemon juice. I've done this with fish and with chicken. Um, and they say, okay, fold it up tight to keep in the moisture. Um, and, but then they say, how do you know it's done? And how it's, do you know when it's, it's done? Pipe, it's thought? piping hot? No, you look for a puffed up, slightly brown parchment package. Huh. That's that's, that's even worse than piping hot. It is. Uh, determine the... Okay, so watch it puff up in the oven, hot oven is the section. Place your package on a sheet pan, put it in the preheated oven. Determining the right temperature and cooking time may take a little bit of experimentation. Uh, the, the scientific method again. Uh, thinner fish fillets can cook it under 10 minutes at 425. A chicken breast will need about 20 minutes. Other factors like the amount of added vegetables and whether or not the fish's skin will also affect the cooking time. How can you tell when it's done? Look for a puffed up, slightly brown parchment package. Open it carefully. Take in the fragrant steam and serve very hot. Uh, or uh, open it up and stick a thermometer into it and see what the temperature is. And if it's above 165 for the chicken, then you know it's done. It does cook much more evenly. I, I can, I, you know, it, I, I could share that when I've used this this technique uh, because of the steam, right? Yeah, like it's, right. it's it, it, you know, you're you're trapping this moisture, the steam's uh, surrounding it, so you're you're essentially using the steam um, to to cook uh, from from multiple sides. So it's a good, I mean, it's a good technique. But I'll tell you, parchment parchment paper is a pain in the ass. My guess is bamboo leaves are even more a pain in the ass. Exactly, exactly. Cool. Um, all right. So all right. we're not, we're knocking them off. Yeah. So, uh, this next one, um, <laughs> is, is from, uh, Chris, uh, Stone, uh, who, who follows us on Twitter. Um, uh, I, I forget what, I think he might be actual deep weed. Deep weed. Yeah. Um, he says, hello, gentlemen. Uh, first, let me thank you for the wonderful and hilarious show with Max Temkin. Such a lively guest. 10 out of 10 would listen again. So thank you for that, Chris. Um, uh, this, this one crossed over my path through another podcast. I assume our podcast listener relationship is an open one. You have other listeners. I have other podcasts. Yes. Thank you, Chris. Um, uh, and so he gives us a link. Uh, to uh, a, uh, a BBC Inside Science uh, podcast entitled Global Food Security Reactive Use-By Labels Origins of the Potato. Um, and I assume he's talking about use-by dates, which, and he says, I think it's related to this. And then he, he links us to a publication on cellulose fibers enable near-zero-cost co- near electrical sensing of water-soluble gases. And the idea is that this would be a, a shelf-life uh, sensor. So so um, they talk about using, this is still reading from Chris's message, they talk about using essentially an inexpensive gas sensor in food packaging to, to determine whether a food has, quote, gone off or not. Uh, great idea. I like it a lot, uh, a lot more than best before dating, but it seems to be pretty limited in scope. They talk about being, quote, safe to eat, but the interviewee only seemed to reference spoilage organisms and the gases resulting from that. Um, so I guess what's, is the, is this a good idea? Um, you know, what do we think about it? Um, 
I, you know, uh, TTI technology has been around for a long time. Uh, Ted Labuza from University of Minnesota came and gave a talk at Rutgers early, in early days of, of the technology. That talk was actually what inspired me in part to get into predictive food microbiology. So, so the technology has been around for a long time, and the idea is that you have some sort of chemical reaction uh, and you re- relate that chemical reaction to what's going on microbiologically. If the bacteria form gases and you can sense those gases, that's great. But that requires knowledge about the microorganisms and the gases and the production rate. And every food is potentially different. And so if you, you, know, you need to have a microorganism that is going to be ubiquitously present at the same level across all of the food of this type, and that, that just simply may not be the case. And so, you know, it's a great idea for a technology, uh, but it's but it's you know it's not it's not as close to application as one might think um, when when one uh, actually starts to look into it. Yeah, no, and the only thing that I'll that I'll add is, um, I guess my quick summary is yeah, dates suck, right? Like because it's not it's not magic. I'm not sure this solution makes it any better. Um, I you know I I, I think the way that you and I have defaulted in a lot of our conversations with, um, with sort of media on, um, safety of best before date. And, um, is, is this becomes a risk management decision. What we want to arm people with is what's the risk to you from a food safety standpoint. And I think as I read through this technology, I don't think it really helps with that. I think it just gives you another indicator that's not a date that says, um, you know, we're going to, we're basically going to look for, um, you know, specific, um, gas related indicators and do it in, in packaging. And maybe that food is still, um, palatable to me and maybe it's not palatable to you. And the gas gives me an indicator that is, um, I don't, I, I don't know, maybe no better, no worse than the arbitrary date. And I say arbitrary. It's me like think that there are lots of companies that you know people from companies that listen to the podcast that would argue that it's not arbitrary when they think about the sensory work that they do to establish those best before dates. Um, but but again, we're we're only relying on um, uh, palatability uh, of a panel as opposed to individual, and and it doesn't really get into the safety issues. So I mean, that's my my thought on this. Yep. Yep. Yep, agreed. Um, so the next the next bit of feedback comes from a uh, former uh, graduate student of mine, uh, Dane Jensen, uh, with the uh, lovely uh, subject header, fecal transplantation. Hi, Don. Ben, how's everything going? In my office, the topic of fecal transplantations has popped up in office <laughs> conversation. I think you mean pooped up, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, people, people, uh, people are convinced fecal transplantation is a panacea for all gut-related illnesses. Given the recent FDA safety alert for fecal microbiota transplantation, do you guys think the food safety community could, should help the FDA and other health agencies with improving the safety of this treatment. Should donors have their diet screened besides their donations? I wonder if donors would be screened similar to blood donors. For example, have you had hepatitis A vaccine? Have you been on a cruise ship in the last 24 to 48 hours? Um, ben, uh, your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I agree. I think Dane brings up a really good point. And the um, article from the New York Times that he, that he linked to um, highlights um, some, uh, you know, sort of pretty, I mean, sort of pretty horrific uh, situations where, um, you know, immunocompromised 
uh, patients are getting fecal transplants and not sort of knowing the um, the 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 history of uh, of the individual um, that's that's doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this this is something that we should, you know, someone should write about. Like this is a good thing to to get out there and um, combating one issue. And I mean, there's there's some like. Um, uh, limitations to a fecal transplant, uh, anyway, on, on what it may do when it comes to combating, um, uh, C. difficile or, or not. Um, but, uh, at least be, being able to put together like a, a list of these questions that Dane started and saying, here are things that would be good to know if you're going to put someone's poop in your, into a pill and then, uh, and then eat it, uh, is a, it's a really good, it's a really good start. Yeah, and, and you know, just just like uh, blood transfusions are a fantastic way to save people's lives, we do screen blood donors, right? And so it is important to realize that anytime you're using something that's sourced from a, a living organism, um, that you pay attention to that. So, yep. so thanks, thanks, uh, thanks for the the comment, Dane. Well, and and just on you know to jump off of this a little bit. Also, on the person who's taking the or you know the pill or getting the fecal transplant, um, if you're are immunocompromised, that's maybe not the best treatment, right? Like for you, um, you know, in, in having some uh, foodborne pathogens in in a pill form for someone who's immunocompromised is not not a great idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so this uh, this is from uh, previous code name Deepstack. Uh, so, thank you, uh, Deepstack, for this. Uh, he says, uh, "Hello again. Just another idle question for the next time you'd like some feedback filler." Here we it's are. Not, it's, not, it's not filler. It's no. it's, it's it's the content. When we, we got too much filler, we got too much. We got too much roughage in our diet. <laughs> we need less filler. We, we have. And I will say also, um, for those of you who don't listen for the feedback, for those of you that listen because you think it's a good way to keep up with food poisoning outbreak. We have listened, we have heard your feedback, and we know that we have a lot of feedback that we're going to try to get through to kind of keep it down to a minimum. Um, uh, and so we can focus on the important food safety outbreaks of the day because, you know, that's important too. So, so rest assured, once we get through this feedback, there'll be more, but we want to clear the backlog. Uh, just just yeah. poop, 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 poop on that backlog. Poop down, um, the, poop down the backlog. All right. Um, so uh, I, and, th- and this is a good one. This is something that I think, again, this, this shows why it's really important to have food safety professionals as well as just normal people listen. Um, so I, when I was out to eat with my family recently and we noticed grains of raw rice in the salt shaker. My spouse had never seen this practice. I think I remember my grandparents doing this to keep the salt from clumping. I found some humid climate people on the net who say that rice is crucial in their part of the world. Thinking of the historically casual attitude towards raw flour, is raw rice an underappreciated risk? Would the salinity and lack of water activity knock out anything bad that would have been on the rice to begin with? Thanks for all the great shows. Um, uh, Let's see. Um, uh, Rising YouTuber, and this is just additional unrelated feedback, rising YouTuber, professor of journalism, Adam Ragusa, recently made a video about meat temperatures. Uh, he consults uh, relevant scientific experts, uh, this time uh, Francisco Diaz-Gonzalez from University of Georgia, whom we know. And to my untrained eye, the safety content of the video seems fine, although Adam does conflate color with doneness a few times towards the end. So we'll, we will link to that, we will link to that uh, video uh, as well uh, for those of you that might be interested. So um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on uh, raw rice and uh, salt, Ben? 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I did a little bit of digging um, on this one uh, while you were talking about it. Because uh, <laughs> this is a professional podcast. This is a professional podcast. No, I mean, I, I, I saw your answer, and what I wanted to, what I wanted to know was, um, and I won't spoil, spoil your thunder, but I was looking for pathogens that we would expect in low moisture um, foods like salmonella mm-hmm. uh, and maybe uh, pathogenic E. coli and maybe um, some listeria, and I couldn't I couldn't find much in Google Scholar where the the risk of uh, or or just the presence of those pathogens in rice grains was has been investigated, and it's probably because um, and it goes back to the. Um, to the the you know raw flour outbreaks, and I appreciate the way that Deep Stack says that it's, you know maybe there's, maybe there's an underappreciated risk here, um, it, mainly because we eat rice cooked for the most part. Um, we really haven't looked at it uh, much, um, and so I just couldn't. Yeah, so I couldn't find anything, but there is uh, you know there is a pathogen that is of concern that we know is associated with raw uh, raw or uncooked rice grains, and that would be. Dawn. That would be Bacillus cereus. Yes. Um, but Bacillus cereus is a high dose pathogen. Um, and so I'm, I'm really not, I'm not really worried about this. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the very famous uh, productivity site Lifehacker, um, they have lots of good advice. Like if you use soap to clean your dishes, it gets them more clean. Um, <laughs> they, they also have some really great advice uh, that you can uh, keep your salt clump free with a few grains of rice. Um, so there you go. Boom. Uh, tip from Lifehacker. Um, I will also say, uh, uh, speaking of speaking of salt, um, we recently so we have a pepper mill because we like fresh ground pepper. But we recently got a salt mill um, for for grinding uh, big chunks of salt into smaller chunks of salt to put on your food, and I yeah. really like it. So uh, huge. I think we have the OXO uh, salt mill, and so um, we do not have. Um, uh, we do not uh, uh, get paid from Amazon affiliate links, but we will. I will. I will link to the. Uh, uh, we probably should, right? We're leaving money there uh, on the table, so to speak. Uh, the OXO salt grinder um, is is a really nice piece of hardware, uh, which we uh, which we do uh, like and use. Excellent, excellent. Um, the only I did just find a, a, a an interesting paper. This goes back to your. Uh, um, Campylobacter in uh, in milk, unattended milk. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an outbreak of, and I'm, I'll, I'll, we'll send this, we'll link to this in show notes. It's not, it's like a photocopied uh, paper <laughs> that may or may not have been uh, peer reviewed. Uh, peer reviewed, but it is entitled Salmonella Food Poisoning in Bangladesh with a publication date of August 1981. And it references uh, salmonella that may have come from uh, rice powder that was a rice flour that was dried outside on the ground. The rice was. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So anyway, that's uh, I'd had. Yep. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the place to look for this question is the rice flour uh, literature. Hmm. Yeah, so I remember visiting uh, Thailand uh, where they do grow a lot of rice, and yeah, watching watching the way that they dry the rice and they just basically lay it on the road. <laughs> and it dries. <laughs> then it's then it's when you know when it's done when it's dry. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, so fecal transplant rice uh, going down. Here we go. Evolution. Let's see. This is a surprise one. Evolution of heat resistance, um, and this is from uh, Deep Heat. Um, uh, message has the recommended cooking temperature increased over long periods of time. If not, can you explain why pathogenic bacteria do not develop resistance to heat as they do antibiotics? Um, so this is, uh, yeah, from, from deep, deep heat. 
This is a what great. This is a great question. Is, by the way, one. this is uh, again. This is why it's it's so important to I think have uh, you know uh, normal people listen listen to this podcast because we would never come up with this, right? Uh, uh, and so the first thing I'll say is that recommended cooking temperatures have not increased. Uh, and in fact, uh, we'll link to the NACMIF document uh, to show that they were revised downward for poultry. Uh, but that's that's a change in policy rather than any any actual science. And it turns out the actual numbers for poultry were, were, too, were too high. Um, so uh, my, my hypothesis is that pathogens probably don't develop resistance to heat because heat is such a fundamental stress, right? Like what happens in when you heat something is you coagulate the proteins. And it's, it's pretty hard. It's not impossible, but it's pretty hard to make proteins that, uh, that don't coagulate. Uh, or if you do, it makes it hard for you then perhaps to infect the things that you normally infect, right? So we, we can find bacteria that have evolved to live in high temperature environments, but those are not the same bacteria that make us sick. And so if you're evolving to live in a, a human, um, that's providing one set of selection pressures versus evolving to live in a hot spring or something is, is a different set of um, uh, of uh, 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 selection pressures. Now, there is a kind of a neat article uh, from the Journal of Biological Chemistry, uh, which was published uh, in 2010, uh, entitled Evolution of E. coli for Growth at High Temperatures. And basically, um, in that study, not, not survival, but growth, um, there does seem to be an upper limit. So according to the, the Journal of Biological Chemistry article, uh, it seems to get to a certain point, and then even if they keep acculturing them, they, they, really don't, they really don't get much above that particular temperature, even after 600 generations. Cool. The only thing I'm going to add, um, we'll link to a couple of papers and show notes from uh, uh, one from uh, Lynn McMullen's group uh, in Alberta, uh, looking at uh, heat, um, talk a little bit about heat resistance and outbreak strains, um, a couple of outbreak strains that, that happened in Canada. And then um, another paper from um, Hugh Lee and uh, Michael Gonsley uh, from Frontiers of Microbiology and, looking and, at... And Michael's also the senior author on the Lynn McMullen paper. Right, right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, looking at uh, a review of heat resistance in, in E. coli in food. And so uh, I, I remember investigating these a little bit a few years ago, and, and essentially it boils down to we, we don't have really good evidence that there's heat resistance um, developed in the same way of, as antibiotic resistance um, because of the stress that, that you, know, you mentioned, Don. But there are some, like, um, some genes that can uh, transfer some, a, a little bit of resistance. So we're not talking about like um, going from 165 uh, or 160 or 155 to like 200, but maybe, um, you know, uh, six or eight degrees Celsius. So, uh, and, but it's not, you know, many of the um, the outbreak strains that we've seen don't have this. It's, it just has popped up in, in very few. So I, I think, I think the, we don't, yeah you know, we don't know enough yet about, about this. Um, and with each, um, with each outbreak that happens, and this is kind of the, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that happens in, in the world of food safety. When I say outbreak strains, it's because those are the things that we're looking at. What's notable about that, that strain that caused the, the illnesses is, is it something special genetically? And a lot of those outbreak strains get shared, um, 
you know, across laboratories. So many people can look at, at, you know, different attributes associated with it. So with the more outbreaks that we have, um, you know, I, I think we re- revisiting some of these outbreak strains, um, and, and asking for some heat tolerance as opposed to resistance, um, and, and investigating that, I think we, we may learn more about it, about what, you know, what's special about it. Um, and, and, and it posed an interesting question when I talked about with Lynn about this is, um, you know, is, uh, you know, 71 Celsius in, in Canada or 160 Fahrenheit here in the U S or one, you know, whatever it is, is that sufficient? And like the vast majority, you know, 99.99999% of the time it is. Uh, but there are certain, you know, a couple of strains out here that we've identified where it wasn't and what, you know, how do we handle that as a risk management decision? Um, going forward, but yeah, great, great, great question. Question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say too that 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 uh, realize that there are um, things that organ that that do, where organisms do involve not just antibiotic resistance. So some of the earlier outbreaks in uh, of E. coli in uh, fermented meat products, the E. coli that were causing those outbreaks appear to be more acid resistant, right? Which allows them to survive in these fermented meat products, and also the acid resistance allows them to pass through the stomach. So so it, we do we do change our food safety recommendations over time. Um, but it, it appears with heat, it's it's a it's it's maybe it's going to be harder for the organisms to get that uh, to get that advantage. Although this this uh, uh, review in Frontiers in Microbiology looks like some pretty interesting reading. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty good paper. Okay, so I'm going to skip over one that we already did, yep. which was the yep. was the snake free, yep. Yep, free snake free snake. Yep. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go to one. I don't think we've we talked about this one, but this comes from uh, Michael Bazzacco, a uh, friend of the friend of the show. Um, and the, he tweets at us, um, "Could we talk about this?" And this was a tweet that he retweeted to us, which was uh, a question of, "Could you cook a pizza using only the heat of other pizzas?" <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a great question. It is, and. Um, <laughs> And so uh, the you know, the the original tweet is is you know, something about I'm picking up 26 pizzas to bring to the school and they were only done with 24 of them, uh, so I looked them up and uh, then waited for the other ones to be done and I just got back in my car and it's 500 degrees in here from all the pizza, um, and so <laughs> I, 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 and I think I think that 500 degrees actually it says 500 effing degrees. Well, um, we will edit that out. Um, uh, it's probably not 500 effing degrees because. Um, Honestly, uh, if it was you, your car would be burned up. So, right, right. Um, but but here lies the root of the, the question, and I'm going to set this up for you. So, I've got a stack of uh, let's say twenty, you know, twenty six pizzas, uh, or you know, a stack of twenty five pizzas, and then I have one uncooked pizza. Can I put that uncooked pizza in the middle of this stack and expect that it would get uh, cooked uh, at all? Um, in, in, from a, from a safety standpoint, I'm not very worried about pizza. I'm only care about, well, I guess I'm, I am, let me, let me go back. I am worried that the not, and I'm not, I'm never, almost never worried about the toppings, but I am worried that the, the, the flour, um, is going to get cooked and that the dough is set. Um, do you think that you can get it hot enough for long enough temperature by just surrounding pizza with a bunch of other hot pizzas? I have not done any science on this, Ben, but my answer is absolutely not. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Because the boxes would burn up. Right? Not going to be too, it's not going to get hot enough. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, but good, good, uh, good one. And that was from um, quite some time ago. So we're going to have a hard time finding that, uh, finding that uh, tweet if we want to link to it. 
Yeah, we're 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 probably just anyway. Just Google uh, cooking pizzas with pizzas. Um. Okay. Where? Oh, oh, oh! I'm like I'm skipping out here. I think I just. Uh, oh no! I lost where my, I lost my spot. Do you know where we are? Yeah. Um. Uh. Twitter feedback on farm oh. regulations with deep yep. bagels. Go do it. Do it. So um. So this came from Twitter. Um, but it, it, and so it's from, it's from a listener, Deep Bagels. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it says FDA needs to end its improper one size fits all to produce safety. Um, uh, the FDA's produce safety regulation fails to account for different levels of risk for fruits and vegetables. As a result, FDA is ignoring legal requirements and regulating far more products than warranted, likely driving up food prices without adding to food safety. The current administration should revise the previous administration's misguided produce safety rule and should do it quickly. Um, uh, emphasis for emphasis. Um, FDA has uh, argued that a commodity should still be subject to regulation, even if it has never been associated with an outbreak of foodborne illness, because at some point in the future, it may be implicated in an outbreak. In its economic analysis of the proposed rule, the FDA explained that it is likely that at least some commodities that currently have never been implicated in an outbreak have a positive probability of being implicated in a future outbreak. Um, I don't know why I highlighted those two particular sections. Um, and I, I don't remember the context now for this or why or why I'm linking to it. But uh, I, what do you think, Ben? What do I think? What do yeah, I think? So what do you I, think? I, thought, I, re- I read quickly through this. So this came uh, – I sent you the link. This originally uh, appeared at the Heritage Foundation. Oh, uh, yes. I know them. Yeah. And, and so um, – so the the summary of the of the quote report is Congress directed the FDA to develop risk based regulations uh, for the production and harvesting of food uh, of fruits and vegetables. The FDA though has instead taken a one si- a quote one size fits all approach to produce safety, failing to take an account for different risk levels across commodities. Um, and, you know, highlighting some of the text that you've already read, but as a result, farmers who grow quote non risky produce will have unnecessarily will have to unnecessarily comply with complex. FDA regulations, and consumers will likely have to pay higher prices for that produce. The FDA needs to reverse course and follow the path. Blah blah blah. Um, my my real question in this and is is what would you if someone asked you for uh, a definition of non risky produce? What would you what would you say that that is, Don? This is where I, I it falls apart for me. Right, well, it's not risky produce. Well, I I think that FDA has differentiated that, and they talk about uh, produce items not normally consumed raw, right? And so that is one one differentiation. Now, where where it gets interesting is in the discussion of what falls in and what falls out of that category, right? And I and there has been some heated back and forth with the the folks in the trade associations and the industry with FDA. So so there, I I I don't I disagree with uh, this is quite surprising, I'm sure, Ben. I disagree with the Heritage Foundation on many on many issues, um, and I don't think FDA has taken a one size fits all approach. I think that they have taken a a, 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 a risk based approach. We've talked about aspects of it. I talked about some aspects of it um, uh, uh, at the IAFP meeting when I talked about the uh, produce uh, the ag water component of the produce safety rule. So they are doing their best to to take a risk-based approach. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. What we can argue about is whether they've made the right buckets, whether they've put the risk in the right way, right? I mean, but 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 I, I don't know. I think this this is just a this is just a stupid 
stupid article. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. And, and that, um, I think they try to make the point here that if an outbreak, if a product has not been linked to an outbreak, then it's non-risky. Oh, right? that, like, that's like the people that call me up and tell me they have a great recipe for a food that they want to put on the market and they've never made anybody sick. Yeah. It, it is such a, um, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's such an issue where it's, it's like, um, yeah, but what about all the other products that are kind of like that, that have the same attributes that are grown in the same manner that maybe we haven't found an outbreak because yeah, it's possible that there hasn't been one, but maybe we're just not really good at finding outbreaks all the time. Uh, what, uh, norovirus in berries, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, cyclospora yep. in raspberries or cyclospora in anything. Uh, we, we used to think cyclospora was a, was an organism that came, that infected foods outside the United States. Well, we had, we had a cyclospora outbreak from us produced product, right? So it's, if we, we don't have any, and, and we also know from, um, Scallon et al. There's, there's two Scallon papers. One is the things that we know that make us sick. And then there's another Scallon paper about the things that we don't know, that we know that we have outbreaks, but we don't know what's making us sick, right? So, the known knowns and the known unknowns. Is <laughs> my, that, favorite, that? my favorite quote. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, okay. So there's some some interesting – I just sent you the the link yep, to the actual paper. So check out the, the end notes because there's some fun stuff in, in here. And so, in fact, they make a suggestion here that um, if uh, let me let me get the exact uh, quote. Um, so, their recommendation is updating their list of quote risky produce. The list of regulated stone. Just because there has been an outbreak in the past for specific produce does not necessarily mean that this produce should be regulated indefinitely. And this is this is where things get fun for me. After a sufficient period of time has elapsed without an outbreak. Uh, such as 10 years, Don, sufficient, the FDA should remove that produce from the risky list. Um, and so there's an end note that goes with that that says, um, even if 10 years has not elapsed, if new agricultural practices or other developments have eliminated the risk, the commodity should be removed from the list. Uh, well, the, the, first of all, there's the, no such thing as eliminating the risk, but, but yeah. I, but I like the idea of having a risk, a list rather, <laughs> I like the idea of having a risk list. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but, and things can come on or come off the list that, that makes a lot of sense. But, but you know, I mean, yeah, anyway, I mean, th- there might be some good ideas here. Well, and it goes back to your comment as really, uh, the real fight is how do you put, how do you put something on the list and how do you remove it? Exactly. Like what? Yeah, that, that that's the part that that not, like this sounds sounds like someone uh, and I'll uh, uh, no uh, uh, no sh- no shade no lemonade <laughs> towards Darren Darren Bast and Jeremy Jeremy Dalrymple, uh, but it sounds like uh, some folks who are not food safety people who are economic people who said uh, this is a bad rule, um, and then they wade into the world of um, of food safety. <laughs> And right, and and yeah. and I think you stay in your economics lane, uh, and we'll stay in our food safety lane. <laughs> no shade, no lemonade. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Um, oh man, we are we are doing we're pounding we're pounding through this. Um, All right, uh, follow up on. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, farmers market follow up. Right. Yeah. Okay. Go for it. We may have already talked about this, but the follow up. Um, was really goes back to a um, a picture or not a picture uh, uh, something we talked about in a podcast episode where I went to see John Kuzak and High Fidelity and um, Deep uh, Deep Chapin Deep Deep Little Deep Chapin Junior 
uh, who's the listener, uh, sent a picture of, uh, um, uh, of people that he went to high school with, um, and, uh, sent a picture of them uh, while they were in high school shooting for high fidelity. Um, so that was, that was kind of cool. So that was, that was the follow up. (laughs) Good. And yeah. And, And that, yeah, that was, that was it. We got a cool, we got a cool picture. So uh, next one is some follow-up on uh, Cut Fruit, uh, and I guess this is feedback from the episode entitled Hot Pants. Um, Can you clarify the issue with salad bar fruit? Is it time and temperature handling or both? Is pre-cut packaged fruit platter an issue if it's not an immediate issue about how long at room temperature before it is? I can't wait until the next pod cast. Um, so, uh, you know, basically my, my comment is it's time and temperature and, uh, the fact that it's not cooked, um, uh, pre-cut packaged fruit is for sure an issue. Um, and then a good, a good rule of thumb is two hours at room temperature. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. Do you, do you have any, any additional feedback on that? I do. I do. Oh, I think okay. that, yeah, I think there's one, one other thing that we, that, that you and I, um, you know, with the inside baseball aspect of what we do, uh, would, would know about and think about where, when we sort of give a generalization about fruit is, uh, it becomes, um, not, not apparent to everyone and that pH matters too. Uh, pre-cut strawberries and pre-cut melons are different, um, in, in this. So I think it's time, temperature and pH. Um, and, and I agree, you know, I agree with you. The general rule of thumb is two hours at room temperature is the limit. I would push that to four hours, uh, just based on the, the science that, uh, that's presented in the, in the food code. Um, and, and, and I, I think we're making, we're making, uh, um, progress in this, this concept of CDC, FDA and, and USDA all say a little bit different stuff. Uh, about how, about temperatures and hours and things. I think we're making progress where I've, I've heard, um, you know, folks on the inside saying maybe we should try to align this to whatever the best available science is and not make any, um, uh, assumptions about how people are going to handle it and w- whether they, if we say two hours that they, that they're going to push it to four hours. So, um, so anyway, that's, uh, you know, a little outside of the, the scope of the question, but yeah, I'd go, uh, I'd add pH to time and temperature. Cool. Yes. Good, good advice. Um, Hey, so this, this is uh, a particular, um, uh, bit of feedback that we got that we procrastinated for a long time, but it actually is now especially relevant. So, uh, this is from, ooh, uh, ooh, I'm yeah. excited. so, so let's, uh, let's call, let's call this, uh, listener, uh, deep sleep. Um, He says, this morning I was awakened by a family member who had discovered that our deep freezer, single unit freezer, had died. They wanted to help me move things from the deep freezer to our combination refrigerator freezer. Although I had planned to sleep for a couple of more hours, I was willing to get up and help move things to cooler ground. While there's probably a discussion to be had about which items are most likely and least likely to pose a food safety risk and how long, blah, 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 temperatures, yes, yes. um, I was wondering if you have any recommendation for refrigerator and freezer thermometers. I think that something with a wireless display would be preferable, although I'm not dead set on this as a requirement. I think an audible alarm or perhaps even a smartphone integration would be highly desirable. 
Also, he says, I briefly worked uh, at a company that created products for oil, fluids, and paper mill industries. They found they could predict when pieces of equipment were about to fail by taking many measurements at different points on the production line, presumably by having a thermometer that says takes readings every five seconds with three decimal point precision. <laughs> Wouldn't be practical for home use, but maybe something that could alert for unusual temperature fluctuations that might indicate a higher likelihood for refrigeration failure. Um, uh, any recommendations would be much appreciated. I started listening to the podcast after hearing about it on Dubai Friday, so yay, 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 Dubai Friday. Hadn't had any particular interest in food safety, but I gave the show a shot. Yeah. Well, there you go. I suppose you could be using underhanded psychological techniques to keep listeners coming back. <laughs> no, I swear we're not. But I've listened to every episode since. Um, underhanded psychological techniques or not, whatever you're seeing to be doing is working to keep up the good work. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, really, really do appreciate the the feedback. So, Ben, follow up. Um, on Monday at while we were at IAFP, I got a phone call from my local municipality. They have an emergency alert, and they said in the phone call, um, the power is out in the offices of the Freehold Borough, and it's likely to be out for several days. Um, the borough hall is closed, and of course, I was in Louisville, so it didn't matter, but that got me thinking, wow, we must have had some really bad storms. Right. Got another message on the phone when we get back on Thursday saying, hey, uh, we're really sorry that uh, there's still about 100 homes that have had the power out, um, including some, Ben, like literally right, like it's free all boroughs, not that big, so right down the road from me, my uh, my contractor, his power was out, and uh, my mechanic, the power was out at his shop. Um and so, uh, fortunately, our power was back on. But, Ben, I knew that because of the blinking lights on things, I knew that our power had been out, but I did not know for how long. And I thought about that thing on the podcast we talked about before where you put a styrofoam cup with a penny in it, yeah. you know, water, et cetera. Uh, and so I did do some research for, for Deep Sleep um, and we'll link to these in a minute. Uh, Thermopen has some, uh, um, you know, I like Thermopen, and they make some alarms. Uh, Lascar is a company that makes uh, temperature and humidity monitoring, which we've used, and they also have some alarms. And uh, also, because I know you like the Comark uh, PDT-300, uh, Comark also makes some alarms. So we will link to all of those. But uh, so I didn't have an alarm because I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't buy one. I had no temperature monitoring data. But what I did have, Ben, is... I put the lights on a timer, right? Okay, so, that, so, okay. that rob, so that robbers think that we're not there, unless, of course, they're sitting there and carefully watching and they see that it goes off at the regular time uh, every night. Um, and, and so I looked at the, the timers, and what I discovered was they were essentially about 20 hours delayed, which means I could, I could predict that the power was out at our house for 20 days or... One hour and 20 days, or or sorry, one day plus 20 days, or two days plus 20 days, or three days plus 20 days. So I figured it was probably just 20 days it was out. Um, 20 hours. 20 hours. 20 hours, rather. It was yeah. out. Not 20 days. 20, 20 hours. days. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a long time. Um, so And the milk was spoiled, but the milk was uh, on the edge when we left for Louisville anyway. Um, I think we threw out some tabbouleh that, that was of un, unknown provenance, and then that we had some uh, intact fresh produce, which looked okay, so we, we kept. And then we also had some frozen stuff that... Uh, didn't I didn't thaw enough to it, it refroze as a chunk. Um, we had some frozen chicken, which we were going to cook anyway, so that was well cooked. So I I I, I was kind of I thought I was kind of clever in how I solved that problem, and and we ended up throwing away some food, but it didn't really give me any information that I didn't have already that I wouldn't have used to make a decision. So well, but the yeah. the information you didn't have 
that you got were the alerts that people had their power out. Right? Yeah, like, I knew I knew that the power. I would have known that power was out at my house because, like I said, the like the 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 microwave is blinking and things right, like that. Gotcha. Um, but but yeah, but but I but I was obviously that was a, could have potentially had a lot more food to throw out. So I um, to, for um, for deep sleep, um, I. We we purchased a new fridge a couple of years ago, and it has a built-in has an alarm alarm in it. And so I can tell when I open the door. So if if the power was off, the first time I open the door after the alarm went off, it'll beep. And then there's a panel on the side that says, "Oh, hey, temperature in freezer, you know, went above whatever. I think we can set it to what whatever we want temperature. You know, so we we um, beat the threshold in, in the alarm. Um, but without that, um, you know, these the products that you that you mentioned, uh, I think would would do the job. Um, but it's it, there's been a, a few times where the uh, the fridge it's like a uh, it's like a French door fridge. So we have two drawers of freezer or no one big freezer door in the drawer in the bottom and then uh, and there have been kids that are terrible where they have uh, left the door open but not fully like slightly ajar but not like fully open and the the alarm will go off over time so so even just a little I, I didn't realize just keeping it open like these two french doors open a little bit how much um like heat was getting in uh, enough that it would trip the sensor to say, oh yeah, it's warm, still warm in, in parts of the fridge. Um, and I, you know, it's one of those things where it like seemed like it was closed, but it wasn't uh, fully closed, which was kind of, I don't know. It, uh, it surprised me. Um, all right, moving on. Yeah. So, we so have, yeah, la- last bit of feedback. Uh, and this comes we did fr- it. from, Don, uh, we, yeah, we did it. We did it. We did it. This comes from uh, popular uh, feedbacker uh, Deep Crimson, and she sends a link uh, to a website called Kitchen. Uh, that's K I T C H N Kitchen. I guess you say that. Um, uh, entitled Myth Busting: What time of year is it safe to eat oysters? Ben, Ben, what time of year is it safe to eat oysters? It's it's always every time of the year. It's equally as safe to eat oysters and equally as risky to eat oysters. <laughs> That's my take. Really? Yeah. Well, like I mean, it's like, and I would say it's equally it's it's equally risky. Okay. <laughs> like the safety doesn't vary uh, from from uh, month to month, very much. <laughs> There's always a risk. Yeah. There 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 is always a risk. There is no there is no safe time of year uh, yes. to eat oysters. Is is I think that there's always a risk. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's it's there's a risk of eating oysters in any month that has more than. Four or more letters in the month name, um, yes. or any what month. was it? Any 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 month that has an e in it? Any no, month that leaves out August. But any oh. any month that has a vowel in it. Yeah, any month that appears in the Julian calendar <laughs> is uh, is is the is your is the worst time to eat oysters. No, we I mean we talked about raw oysters um, quite a bit. Uh, the, there has been sort of this historical myth. Uh, well, not myth. Historical. Um, uh, situation of uh, you know uh, uh, e- you should only eat oysters that um, uh, that in months that contain the letter R. So September, October, Jan- December, and January, not June, July, and August. And so this article goes through a little bit why, but then it gets into like well, but here are things where that's not really it's old advice. So many oyster farms are in cold waters, different oyster breeds, more monitoring and accountability, and better food safety practices. The, all of those things have reduced the risk. Um, I don't know if it's really normalized 
the risk across, you know, uh, hot temperatures versus cold temperatures. Um, but I, none of that would say to me, um, you know, I, I still wouldn't eat raw oysters, uh, from, a from the, for the food safety risk. And also, cause I think they're gross. <laughs> Exactly. That part. Exactly. And and I will say, um, uh, you know, there there is some something we can do from this scientifically. And so there's an article uh, that was recently published in Applied and Environmental Microbiology, and I am familiar with this article because I served as the scientific editor for the article. And it has the uh, mouthful of a title: Operational in situ prediction and forecast models for Vibrio parahemolyticus in the Chesapeake Bay are attainable and can benefit from including lagged water quality measurements. I will read to you from the importance section. Results revealed that using multiple water quality measurements is necessary for satisfactory prediction performance, challenging current efforts to manage the risk of infection based upon water temperature alone. Results also highlight the potential advantage of using historical water quality measurements. So this goes back to this water quality measurement alone. When is the water the warmest? It's in June, July, and August, right? But it turns out, it's, it turns out Ben, I don't know if you know this, it's complicated and it depends on more than just water temperature. There you go. That's it. So oh. science, once again, uh, muddies the waters. <laughs> Wait, way to go. And most importantly, we have no more feedback. Yes. We have now – that was – and just for, for Deep Crimson and other listeners, um, that one's been sitting in our, uh, in our folder since May 5th, uh, which is weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Um, and, and it's, uh, so it's still, it's, but, but here's the thing, Ben, it wasn't safe to eat oysters in May and here no. is July. It's still not still safe. Not, still not safe. Still not safe. Still, still equally as risky and is <laughs> equally as safe. Um, not very safe. Um, all right. Well, I think that's a show. Um, I think that's a show. Oh, oh, yes. oh, 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 but there's something oh. I, we need to share. We need yes. to share. Okay. So if you're listening to this show and you're listening to it before, um, uh, 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 what day is it? Oh my gosh. I had this information. Um, next Tuesday, next Tuesday, next Tuesday night, we will be at, uh, on Tuesday, August 6th, uh, 2019, we'll be in the Blencoe auditorium on the Renton technical college campus. Uh, we are going to be uh, doing uh, a, a live food safety talk, um, and I don't know what time it starts. So I think it's seven seven p.m. Is that correct? I will. I will look. Seven. Up. Yeah. It is okay. Seven p.m. The seven p.m. Tuesday, October sixth. No tickets of it are, are are necessary. Um, we did have a couple of questions on Twitter about this. So if you're in the, uh, you know, Seattle area, um, rent, we'll be in rent in Washington. Uh, come, come by, we'll do a, a fun podcast. Uh, there's nothing, this is a fun one for us because, uh, we, we did one in, um, in Geneseo last year, um, where we, we basically, there's nothing, we don't have a hard out. We don't have anything going on afterwards. We're not on to meet some sort of a conference schedule. This, this is just us. So, um, come by, uh, come see us sit in the audience, ask questions. We'll ask questions of you. Um, we'll, if, if you know, but, but come, but come, come to the, to the Renton technical college campus, the Blenco auditorium, 7 PM, Tuesday, August 6th. Right, and we will we will put a link in the show notes. Uh, this 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 you have a, this wonderful PDF, but I don't think it it it, uh, it it's anywhere. It doesn't live anywhere on the web, right? I don't think so. Yeah. But so I'll, we'll, we'll, there, all right. Well, yeah. we'll we'll put it up. We'll put a link to it. We'll put it. We'll post it on our website, uh, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. 
Yeah. And I, there will be a link to that. And then there's another link that I'm sending you now to the Washington state environmental health association that, uh, has the same information. Awesome. 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 Don, as always, seen you in, in Seattle. We just saw you. This is we, in the last two weeks, we'll have recorded more po- live podcasts. Well, three weeks, more live podcasts than not live podcasts. <laughs> And and we're recording more podcasts than ever before, Ben. Every week, Ma- many more podcasts than you can imagine. Every week we've got a podcast coming up. Uh, That's so, pretty good for a biweekly podcast. Yeah, bonus podcasts. Uh, good stuff. All right. Well, I will uh, I will talk to you soon. And again, thanks for all of the listeners on feedback. As Don mentioned, um, we we're now caught up, uh, and uh, we'll be we'll be getting back to the sort of food safety in the news and and outbreaks and in, in new papers. But that doesn't mean to stop sending us feedback. Please send it to us. Um, now that we're caught up, it'll stop sort of sitting in in our box. So. And we promise to talk more about outbreaks. And also, also, if you want to send us feedback. And ask us to talk about a particular outbreak that you are particularly interested in. You can do that, too. That works. That works great. Um, All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Don. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So how was my audio? Your audio was fine. A couple of times you bl- you blipped, yep. but maybe yeah. I, I mean a handful, uh, less than five. Yeah, you were you were you were blipping for me too. So oh. um, hopefully it will not be horrible. But you know, hey, here's the thing: if you're listening to this podcast now and you're still listening after the outro, um, we know that you don't care about. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't listen. Here's the thing: it has to be listenable. But it doesn't have to be like Marco Arment quality. Right. <laughs> Let's just say. Right. This isn't our job. Yeah. <laughs> we have tenure, Ben. Yeah, we got tenure. I'm a, I'm a full professor now, Don. I got yeah, I can do whatever. Do whatever. Um I sent you three yeah. possible uh, show titles. Uh and the, they were the they were the three best. Um I <laughs> okay. didn't I didn't capture too many others. All right. Um, but I think boat toad is my favorite, even though it was early on. It's great. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you the ones that I captured. So cool. Um, and Oh, there we go. Boat ton of sugar, chest pats, nasty piece of meat. One twenty one, one twenty two. Um, Oh, we both, we both, we, we both picked pooped up. Yeah. 
Um, poop tub's good, and then cook a pizza with a pizza is good too. I'll take I'll take either of those. Cook a pizza with a pizza is like good, a good for a picture. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't know. I pooped up would just be a picture of poop. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. cool. All right, and this one's yours. This one's mine. I just, yep. I just did one. You give me all the hard ones. You give me all the all, all the live recordings. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's uh, that's the way it goes, Ben. It's true. Um, and I'm gonna tweet out a couple of times over the next couple of days about it. Um, the, about live, the live, the live one. one. Yep. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can get some folks there and if not, it'll be fun. We'll yeah. be, we'll hang out. We'll do, if you're listening to the after show, um, we'll see Don, Don and I, um, might, might even go for like a, a beer and a, and a meetup afterwards. Um, so, uh, I don't know. We'll see how we see, we'll see how we feel. Yep. Um, I, Oh, I had a question about Seattle. Do you, are you getting, do you want a, um, do you want me to pick you up? Do you want do you want to rent a car? Both of those things are possible. We have budget for if you want to I'm renting one, Natalie's got one, so we got a bunch of cars, but I'm happy to pick you up. Yeah, I I I uh, I have I have already rented a car. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> With or without permission, um I have already rented a car. So Perfect. Well, I will see you on Tuesday or whenever you get in. Yeah, so let's see. I get in on Monday at 5 o'clock. Okay, I get in Monday at like ten thirty in the morning. If okay. you if you are interested and you want to come see any of the yeah um the course, just you know it's at the same. I think it's in the same. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's it's on that same uh, uh, link that you just sent me, right? Yeah, right, right. It's a rent technical yep. yep. H one hundred two. Just come on, um, and stop in so you can see what's up. And uh, yeah, we got we got two. We're doing two back to back. This is a whole thing. Yeah, I, you know, this, this has this, since you since you've been doing these, these, these have intrigued me, and uh, I I am interested. So uh, I'm gonna I I'm uh, yeah. So my my intent is to is to come and check it out. That's my intent today as I sit here. So, yeah. well, and your your uh, your um, invitation is standing. It's an open standing invitation. <laughs> I don't need to register. You don't need to register. Not I a, just yeah, show up. Not a, yeah, I comped you. I comped you. Right oh here. man, yeah, you're on a list. I'll put you on the list. Cool. Got it. There's a guest list. You're on it. Nice. Uh, there's no guest list, uh, but you're, you're, you don't have to. <laughs> but <finish>. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. So, like last time, I think we should go ahead and schedule one for. Oh yeah. Like next, you know, next week, not next week, the week after. Sure. Like I agree. Let's do. We're gonna do four in a row. Oof. Just because we missed, we skipped one. I think a while back. Um. So, what is hot eats cool? Oh, I know what that is. I got a meeting. I have a meeting. If we were looking at the 14th, which, which is what I'm currently looking at, mm-hmm. um, I could do any time in the morning. I have a heart out at noon, and then I've got a meeting from 12 to 1, and then I could do anything. Oh, what's, what's this go to, go to meeting? Oh, and then we have a FSPCA. Yeah, from 2 to 3. So do you want to do the morning of the 14th? Do you want to do – I could do morning or afternoon of the 15th. I can't do the 16th. Um, I could do the morning of the 13th. Um, yeah, sorry. So, uh, I got distracted. Um, uh, 13th is probably not the best cause that's Robin's, uh, PhD defense in the morning. Um, okay. uh, I could do the 14th. Um, the 15th is wide open. Um, I let's can, do but, the, f- okay. Yeah. yeah. Right, I could do the 14th in the morning. I could do the 14th in the morning, but then we got a hard out at noon. So it would be like we could start at 10 and go till noon because um, uh, I'll be on – I think I'll be on – I'll have to be on campus for that. 
Um, so, so your heart out is, is this other FSPCA thing? Yes? No? No, I have SPCA happening at two. Yeah, I don't know what I got. I got like two SPC, FSPCA things. I have them both happening at two. Oh. P- not, not at noon. I have it from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. now. Like it's changed time. Oh, is, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I get so many emails from them. Yeah, so that's my... Okay. So why don't why don't we do the so I'm gonna do a lunch on the fifteenth. I could do uh, what's better. I don't think it matters. We could do the morning of the fourteenth or afternoon of the fifteenth. Let's do afternoon of the fifteenth. Okay, and then let's say let's say two o'clock. Okay. Okay, so we did one. We just recorded one eighty. We're doing one eighty nine. Next week. So this is 190. Yep. <clears throat> Man, we're banging them out. Just banging. I mean, we'll get to, we're going to get to 500 soon. And then, and then, <laughs> well, of course, we're going to get to 200. No, I've, we're, I'm already, I've already hit 200 in my mind. And then 300. And then 250. 200 is a bicentennial. Yeah. 250 Three, is I a mean, sesquicentennial, right? Ses- yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and three, 350, I mean, who cares? No one matter. It doesn't matter. Um, all right, cool. Okay, um, so I shot you a bunch of links. Yep. We should be good. Yep. And yeah, so sorry. I mean, I literally edited whatever last week, Thursday, Friday. I edited all the audio, and then I just like went to the pool, basically, <laughs> until yesterday when I was like, "Oh, hey, I wonder, like, I want, I wonder how people like that episode." And I was like, <laughs> "It's no not one, posted yet. It's not posted. No one, no one liked it because because you didn't do anything with it, you dumbass." So, um, so sorry about that. That oh, was no worries. Yeah, I totally forgot. Um, all right, cool. Well, I will. I'll see you Tuesday. Sounds um, good. If not, uh, if I don't uh, chat with you before, sounds good. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.